Beside the young people on Venus and Mars They got lads and lasses, they got bars and bars And they got better transport than four-wheel cars Have you ever seen them? Most flying saucers whisking through our skies Must take some power to make them rise But government departments just hide their eyes And call them meteors With all the lies that they print and shout The general public has his work cut out Figuring what it's all about But just you keep on trying I suppose you know why I'm telling you this So you won't shriek or shake your fist When you discover Martians do exist They're real nice fellas I know cause I met one a week ago His ship came down for an hour or so He talked to me but then he had to go Real interested I was Got brothers on Venus and Saturn it seems Fly their ships on magnetic beams They wear one-piece suits, you can't see any seams But apart from that, they're just like us interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. I guess it's that one. It's Radio Mysterioso. That's very loud. Okay, there we go. And as promised tonight, we um, have a surprise guest. Well, it was a surprise for me because we just uh, um, basically met in person this morning. Uh, the guest is Patrick Connolly. Am I pronouncing your name properly? Okay. How's it, how about that? Try that. Yes. There we yes. go. Okay. And he is doing... What he's doing right now is he in the, he's in the middle of producing uh, and directing and shooting... A film about the 1950s contactee movement, and when I first talked to him, I thought, "Hey, this guy is is uh, we're I think we're basically on the same wavelength because you know that I think you have a appreciation for the contactees and kind of an affection for them and interest in them, but you're not interested really in making fun of them that much. No, not at all. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I haven't been in a radio studio for uh, quite some time. This isn't really a radio studio. <laughs> well, of course not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 
Most of the uh, films and, and whatnot I've seen out there about the contactees have always been either uh, mocking or maybe gently mocking or really dry and, you know, like Ken Burns contactees or something. <laughs> and, you know, I wanted to do something that was sort of entertaining and captured sort of the era. Yeah. And captured the sort of fun of the whole thing. Yeah, because uh, um, Patrick today brought uh, his camera over to my place, and uh, I talked at his camera for about two and a half hours, I think. Yeah, and I said, I hope there's something useful in there. And I realized that I think probably he knows, <laughs> at this point, he probably knows more about the contacting movement than I do. Not that I know a lot, but and, I mean, it's kind of a hobby, I guess. Um why why a film on the contactees? Why why would you even care to tackle this subject? Because do you have any interest in the UFO subject really at large? A little. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Um, for whatever reason, the contactees have always sort of struck the the heartstrings. I guess. Um, the, uh, there's just something about you know I'm a big fan of the like old 50s sci-fi. Yeah. And it's sort of like the uh, the contactees sort of merge that yeah. with. Uh, Sort of nonfiction UFO stories, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. It was, it was just it's just always fascinated me. Yeah. Uh, you know what? We forgot to say that the uh, name. Do you want to give out the name of the the working title or the uh, actual title? Sure. Well, it's. Uh, I guess at this point it's uh, still a working title. Uh, it's called "They Rode the Flying Saucers." Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a riff on you know the the types of titles of the books that were out. Uh, you know, like George Van Tassel's I Rode a Flying Saucer or yeah. um, Aboard a Flying Saucer, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's covering them all. So it's if they all wrote a book, they call it <laughs> They Rode the Flying Saucers or yeah. We Rode the Flying Saucers. I always thought that was a funny title because I think of like a guy sitting on top of a flying saucer, <laughs> like with a saddle, like right. Slim Pickens and, and Dr. Strange. <laughs> I, I had a professor in, in college who made a documentary called I'll Ride That Horse. Yeah. <laughs> so whenever I think of it, that's that's what comes to mind. Okay, so you have an interest in the UFO. You can extemporaneize all okay. that you want. All right. um, you have an interest in the uh, the UFO thing to begin with, but why did you specifically say, well, the, the contactees are one of what I want to make a documentary? Is it because it deals with people more than kind of the phenomena itself? Or yeah, I I I think that is a large part of it because. Um, there's more humanity in the stories, I think. Like, uh, you know, I love humanoid reports, you know, uh, yeah. alien abduction stories and stuff. But they all, they, they can start to get a little dry. Yeah. Um, and, and I love the, I, just the, the sort of hope that is expressed, you know, by the contactees and their, there's a sort of uh, hope for the future. Yeah, that I, I, that just really appealed to me, and you know, I, I don't I don't even really know. It's just <laughs> something that, that always hit at my core. Um, in the early '90s, uh, that film that was on uh, the Discovery Channel called "Farewell, Good Brothers." Um, pardon me. Um, and speaking of uh, movies that sort of lightly mock the contactee movement, yeah. Um, it when I saw that I'd never heard of these things, of, of these people, and I was totally blown away by just the the concept of it. 
You know, it's it's like these people that meet angelic beings. You know, for yeah. if you could look at it as they are angels. You know, if if you're looking at it in a different context, and they're being completely serious, completely sincere, and like, how have I not heard of this? You know, I was very familiar with uh, Whitley Strieber and and Bud Hopkins and. You know the Betty and Barney Hill sort of stuff. I'd never heard of of basically meeting humans from space, and uh, just for like ten, fifteen years, that just sort of brewed in my consciousness. I would just sort of go back to that and and start, uh, you know, reading the books, researching it, and at a certain point, it just reached a critical mass. And I was like, you know what, I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, I'm making a movie about it. Um, right. I'm, I'm making the movie that I wanted to see right. about it. And uh first thing I did was uh, try to track down Howard Menger and, you know, see if he was still around. And he had just died about two weeks before then. This happened to me a couple of times. Yeah. Not with Menger, just people. Yeah. Rafael Angelucci died them like a month or two before I, I tracked him down. Right. And it, it was, I was like, damn it, I, I got to get on this. I got to you know, get a hold of these people while I can. So uh, there really aren't many left to get a hold of. So I have to rely on, you know, their, their heirs, I guess. Um, you know, for example, Glenn Steckling, who is the uh, current head of the Georgia Damsky Foundation. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and he knew Damsky. But, uh, you know, I'm 30 years, I was born 10 years too late to talk to Adamski himself, so. Yeah. Um, did did Glenn Steckling not write, We Discovered Alien Bases on the Moon? Uh, I believe his father did, Fred Steckling. Okay, Fred Steckling. Oh, really? Yeah. So they are related. Yeah. Obviously. It's not, uh, it's not a common name. Yeah. Uh, George Adamski was friends with uh, Fred uh-huh. um, in the last few months of his life. And uh, he handed a briefcase and everything in it over to Fred like uh, the week before he died and said it's yours now and uh <laughs> then and then uh glenn took over from his father when his father died oh okay so, so. he's he's uh he runs the georgia damsky foundation and mm-hmm. fields all the calls and you said still defends adamsky and very much he's very much uh and you, you can uh, say things proponent. about people that well you know what if there's things you don't want people to hear for the record don't worry about it, but <laughs> I, I bring that up because you, you, you're telling me about it, your interview with him and that he was absolutely believed everything that Adamski said mm-hmm. and anything that didn't agree with Adamski said, he said was false or a lie or whatever. Yeah, he, he he's very much uh, following in the footsteps of Adamski himself and, uh, you know, I believe his sincerity. You know, I have no right. no faults there. And he, he says he's had his own experiences in... Adamski's presence, for example, the the famous Rotifer film uh, that Adamski shot in the last few months of his life uh, in Maryland. It's it's if you if you the look the Silver it up on, Spring film, yeah, the Silver Spring film. Yes. <coughs> okay, um, he was there for that. He wasn't there for the filming of it, but he was there yeah. for the the screening after they got the footage developed. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, so he. That's as close to a first-hand, first-hand account as, as I can get, and, yeah. and I'm not one to um, discount them. 
you know, I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, it's definitely hard for me to believe. It's yeah, <laughs> but but you know, it is what it is. And uh, I've learned things while doing this film, and heard stories that really kind of mess with my reality a little. Really, in what way? I mean, for an example. Well, it, it's like it was. It was very easy for me early on to completely discount, uh, for example, George Adamski. You know, he was just in it for not really a buck, but you know, the the fame or or just to get his his message out. That's what it seemed like to me. Yeah. Um, and then I met a friend of his, and you know, this friend, elderly now. Um, was telling stories. He was just a kid when he knew George. And he was telling stories from his own, excuse me, his own experience. And, you know, he had contacts. You know, he was waiting in a lunch line and heard this voice in his head. And this guy is very um, level-headed. He's an engineer. He, you know... As far as I know, no history of mental illness, anything like that. But he heard this voice in his head, and this guy was like, uh, hey. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and and he turned around, and this guy kind of leans out of the lunch line and waves at him. And he gets his food, and he goes and sits down. This guy sits down next to him and starts talking to him and says, I know you're interested in us. you know, And, and like starts chatting and you know he's telling me this story and it's one thing to read these stories um you, you know with with a distance of 50 years yeah another to hear someone telling you and you, you look in their face and you see the like they're remembering it like they're you yeah. know any other memory and there's a sincerity there that's really compelling um and then he told stories about George that were sort of, you know, external verification of some of George's stories. And it's just, right. It, it's, it's almost like in, in your book with the, in Project Beta with the disinformation campaign. Yeah. It's like it's, it's hard to tell what's true and what's not because there's yeah. so many ins and outs. Well, you know, when I, hear, when I hear you saying that, when I think about the contactees and what they've, you know, what they produced and some of the people I've talked to vaguely, sort of, um, not as closely as you have, but people with you know, experiences with things that they can't explain. Some of the time I'm thinking, and this is what I think about the contactee thing, is that there was some instigating event, be it something they think was real or was real with somebody they thought wasn't earthly or some kind of extremely vivid dream or a fugue or state or something that they... That right. completely affected them and totally affected them, and I don't know if I was standing next to them what I would have seen. Right. But then that makes it okay later to to make stuff up. Right. Or yeah. you know, think of a dream they had. And it's like, oh, they you know, the space presence must have been must have been talking to me then because it was so vivid and I remember it so well. And anything that fits into that that mythology, and when I use mythology, not as a you know, a lie, but mythology mm -hmm. as an evolving system of, you know, belief or whatever. Right. Anything that fits into that mythology is okay to include in it and is legitimate and is, you know, it, it is, it just becomes part of their story and they completely believe it. And that's my idea of what's going on. So if somebody tells me something like, you know, so sincere looks at me, I'm sure, pretty sure they believe it. Yeah. And like I said, if I'm, I was standing next to them and this, when this happened, 
I don't know what I would have seen or heard. So, but yeah. I'm, I'm willing to, for the space of time that they're telling me their story, and they seem sincere about it, and they're not trying to sell me anything or whatever, I'm perfectly willing to believe while they're talking to me what they're saying. Absolutely. I, you know, I don't, I don't understand this notion of mocking people, putting them down uh, for something they're saying, you know, specifically with the UFO uh, sort of phenomenon. I was at a, an event recently. And I told the guy that I was doing this documentary, he was like, I have a story for you. And he told me this story uh, about when he was a kid, he and his brother were walking down the street, and they looked up, and like 50 feet up was this giant metal disc just hovering there. Yeah. And he said, this has really affected me my entire life. I saw it. My brother saw it. It was there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm fascinated by this story. I'm like, wow, really? You know, tell me more. What did it look like? Yeah. All this. And someone else in the group just starts says oh give me a break that's bullshit you know like just <laughs> completely and i'm like why are you why are you shutting this down this is yeah. a great story even if you don't you don't have to believe it yeah nobody's asking you to believe it but yeah it's it's entertaining yeah you know? there, i think there's a i don't know what that giggle factor is i think it's uh, to be really cruel i think it's a an ego thing with people that are like that, yeah. you know, an upbringing, a toilet training thing. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> somebody that has to be so sure that somebody else is full of crap. Right. Um, to the point of just saying, ah, like, what do you, why do you care? Yeah. Who is the person hurting by telling this story? Why does it even bother you? Yeah, exactly. Maybe because it think, they think the person is trying to get attention or something like that, but it doesn't sound like, you know. What what was it a film group or something or? Uh, actually, this is totally unrelated. Um, my my uh, girlfriend is a an agent oh, okay. for uh, college campuses. Like she books acts on college campuses. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, I was at a, a conference with her, and this was a, a a guy at the conference. Yeah. Completely unrelated to film, yeah. or or anything like. As far as I know, he has nothing to do with the field. He was just telling an honest, you know, yeah. as, as far as he's concerned, an honest story of, of his youth. And uh, uh, and it's actually funny. I was, um, turns out I, I, I was reading a book. This just reminds me a little tangent. But um, I was reading a book called Montana UFOs. Uh, I can't remember who wrote that. Oh, okay. You're from Montana, I'm from right? Montana. Yeah, Missoula, so, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and and Bozeman. So I wanted to read this, obviously, and uh, I'm reading this book, and I knew one of the guys who's <laughs> telling the story from the '60s, and he was uh, my best friend's dad. Yeah. So, so I uh, called him, and he's like, "Oh my god." You know, it's just like he expected, like the show, you know, you expect no one's ever going to hear about this. Yeah. But, you know, then here I am in L.A. going, hey, <laughs> uh, read your story. And, you know, talk to him a little bit about it. And he's like, yeah, I saw these things. And his was a light in the sky sort of thing. But they were doing things that lights in the sky shouldn't do. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know. I just I. My honest opinion on is something is going on. We is a little green men. Who knows? But you know, give it a fair shake. Investigate what it could be. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The um. And since you started making this film, I bet 
you get that a lot more where somebody will come up and start telling you something because they think you're the first person they've seen in a long time that isn't going to go, ah, or not listen to you or make fun of you or whatever. I get that. And I'm sure anybody that I don't speak at UFO conferences anymore, but right. when I did, you'd be there at signing books or whatever. And somebody would come up and tell you, and you think, oh, God, now now what? <laughs> and then you realize they're just getting it off their chest because when they're done, they, they'd say, okay, thanks for listening, and they'd walk away. Right. They just want somebody to listen without making fun of them. Or, and they weren't, you know, and some people didn't even want a book signed, or some would just get the book signed just so they could tell me their story, I think. Right. Well, I think that speaks to the the veracity of their claims, at least in their own yeah. in their own way. Whether it's literally true uh, or at least true in their minds, so um, I haven't had too much of that myself because I'm not out in the public eye, yeah. but, you know, like you are. Um, yeah. Not anymore, very much. But well, anyway. <laughs> yeah. but I, I, you know, when I have gone to events or areas, um, I have had some of that. I, I, you know, I was in Roswell a couple years ago. Uh, for their festival, and you know, I had people tell me, "Yeah, this guy came in. He was eight feet tall, and he had eyes on the side of his head." Yeah, you know, and like, oh, okay, all right. Uh, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to do with a lot of the things that people say. Yeah. You know, and except that, or if they say, "What do you think I should do?" I was like, well, "What? Why do you need to do anything?" <laughs> like, well, because it bothers me. I said, like, "Well." There are probably 100, 200 people here with similar stories to yours. Right. So if it me- if it, you think you're crazy and nobody else ever, it's never happened to anybody, nobody's going to believe you, that's that's false. People here will believe you. Right. If you want to think that you can get more people to believe you, that ain't going to happen. You just have to you know deal with it yourself. Yeah. I, I believe that you believe you saw the thing. I wish I had been standing there. And yeah. th- that's all I can say. And if it really bothers you, you know, go... Go find a psychologist, psychiatrist, or a trusted friend or somebody, you know, to talk to about it. Yeah. That's the only thing I can say, really. Don't go to a UFO investigator, please. (laughs) That should be the last person you go to. That's usually what I'll say. Yeah. You you get the, uh, what do they call it? Uh, Bias. Confidence bias. Observation. What's the term? Confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you go to a UFO researcher or something, you're just going to get... Oh, yeah, clearly that was a... Yeah, well, the thing is that they're going to try and... Well, I don't know if they will, but they will try and mold your experience to what they expect. Right. And you know what? It's going to take you further away from what that experience probably was. Because right. somebody somebody who's listening to you and sympathetic is describing something that they didn't see, but they've heard other people talk about. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes you feel better, but I would suggest not going to a UFO researcher to talk about this. Right. And, and I, I am not a UFO researcher, so <laughs> I don't count. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I'm not going to tell you that you're lying or that you're full of crap or I'm not even going to tell you that, I, you know, that I think you're it's great and it's the best thing I ever heard. And you're, it's absolutely 100 percent the truth. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think it is, but. You know, it's. It, it, you, I wish you could tell more people. That's all. And then, but well, you know what? In in the course of talking to people, it, it, it usually they're just kind of like, okay, unless they have some like specific idea that they want to impart, then you can't really say anything. Right. You're like a priest of the paranormal. You're just here <laughs> to say. <laughs> yes. A lot of people these conferences are. I think they are. Yeah. You know, and then like I said, with each other too. Some of these people. Where, what do you want to do with the film when it's done? Where you just. 
It's a general audience film, right? Of course. Yeah, it's not. It's not for. I'm not really going to be exploring any information that people, serious researchers, won't already know. Um, it's just sort of a to to get it out there, you know, to a to a broader audience. I mean, yeah. you know, who knows how broad a uh, small independent film will get? But it depends. You never know. Um, and I'm taking a, a slightly different route with it. Um, uh, like we were talking earlier, I'm an animator, and most yeah, of the, I should have pointed that out. I'm sorry. Yes, uh, my day job is I, is that I'm an animator, so uh, I have all this uh, source audio uh, from the Wendy Connors Faded Discs archive, yeah, uh, and other places. Uh, so I, you know, I, I found all this audio, and I was like, well, how can I make a film out of this? And then it occurred to me, hey. <laughs> I do that for a living. Yeah. So uh, I'll be recreating uh, a, cer- a, a certain amount of it. I've seen a little bit of it. I was telling Patrick today that uh, a little bit on a dam ski, and there were basically um, um, rough sketches or uh, what are they, keyframes or something like that. Storyboards, sorry. And that uh, they <laughs> of Georgia Damsky, and it really looked like Georgia Damsky. Like, re- he did a great job of not caricaturing, <laughs> but whatever you want to call it. If you want to make a... You know, uh, a, a portrait of Georgia Damsey that moves these the, these look pretty good. Yeah, and you've well, you've I probably you probably have seen film of him too, and so you can you uh-huh. can kind of yeah, because there was I don't know about plenty, but there is some film of yeah, him. Yeah, I, I think I've only actually seen like one actually moving clip of him. But, yeah. Uh, uh, but I don't know. It's uh, it's a very uh, fine line to walk because um, I I don't want people to think that it's cartoonish. Yeah. And uh, not worth taking seriously, but at the same time, I do want it to be entertaining and uh, fun to watch. So I'm trying to find that that middle ground in in the visual style at the moment. And unfortunately, you know, with the the clip that I shared with you, there's not much uh, final visual development yet to see. So it makes me want to see more but the thing i'm front loaded to really enjoy it because it's you know it's right. a passion of mine and, and actually after we finished talking uh, patrick and i i forced him to come over and look at all my contact ebook collection <laughs> and we're like oh you have that oh you know have you seen this it's like oh this was up on ebay and you know we had a really good conversation just about the ephemera you have an amazing collection there's some really incredible stuff up there thank you yeah, it's. I stopped collecting a while ago. Yeah, because uh, I, it, stuff has gotten very expensive. It has. I I, I won that eBay. Uh, you did auction. I was telling you about. I got the Howard and Connie Menger book. Oh, cool! <laughs> <laughs> Threads of light to you. Yeah, you said. Oh, it, you don't know about this, but you, you can't. It can't be an official radio mysterio. So without sirens, sirens going by. It, we're at. Um, uh, Beverly and, and Vermont, which is a very busy intersection in Los Angeles, right near the freeway, and actually I think right near a police station, and constantly, not constantly, but every show at least once there's uh, there's sirens going by. And people that listen to the show, ever, actually three quarters of the way through the show, they'll start emailing me and say, hey, where's the sirens? <laughs> <laughs> well, as fa- I, when I was driving up, there was an accident right in front here. With, uh, uh, oh, really? I didn't see. Cops and... Police or uh, fire trucks. Oh, okay. Well, I hope they're okay, and I'm glad you made it in without having to be, you know, tangled <laughs> in it or slowed down or whatever. Yeah, it was. It was uh, just a fender bender, and headlight was out. 
I was like, really? There, there's this much uh, first responder activity yeah. around a fender bender? Yeah, it must, it must mean that there's a, that somebody is, is very bored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and boredom boredom breeds evil, as we all know. Um, so you're just shooting this all on high def, and it's you've got a deadline for yourself for it. Uh, yeah, my... It's funny. I, I set a deadline for myself, and I can't remember when it is now. <laughs> um, I can't remember if it's this year or next year, but it's like uh, December. Um, Disney is coming out with a film called Tomorrowland. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I could look it up and find I'll out when that's supposed you. to be re- uh, released. <clears throat> Tom Hanks, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have heard of this. Um, and I don't know what it's about. Uh, but it sounds like it's about sort of a retro-futuristic sort of thing. You know, like Tomorrowland at Disneyland. So yeah. uh, that sounds as good a reason as any to pick that date. You know, same sort of subject matter. And I've been working on this. I just looked today. Almost exactly five years was that, that day when I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I think it's time to really kind of ramp it up and wrap it up. Yeah, this says 2015, but it doesn't have a specific date. Oh, good. So I have time. Uh, George Clooney, Hugh Laurie, Britt Robertson, and a bunch of other people I've never heard of. Judy Greer, I've heard of her. And a bunch of other people I've never heard of. Does it say what it's about? Um, Science fiction mystery film directed, co-written, and produced by Brad Bird, and produced and co-written by Damon Lindelof. Lindelof. Did did you say Brad Bird? Yes. Oh, wow. I'm... I'm, my interest has just gone up then. Really? Uh, originally announced a film for, under the working title 1952. Until it was renamed, <laughs> sharing its name with a futuristic themed land found at various Disney theme parks. Oh, scheduled to be released May 22nd, 2015. Oh, okay. So they must have moved it. Yeah, it plot. Bound by a shared destiny, former boy genius Frank, George Clooney, jaded by disillusionment, and Casey... A bright, optimistic teen bursting with scientific curiosity and by, embark on a danger-filled mission to unearth the secrets of an enigmatic place somewhere in time and space known only as Tomorrowland. What they must do there changes the world and them forever. It sounds like it could be good, but somebody's like killed it with this horrible uh, 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 plot description. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what, what you said about it is... Um, it's, it sounds like a retro-futuristic thing. Yeah. And then we talked about Tomorrowland. It's like, you know, Tomorrowland used to be about tomorrow, but nobody has any idea what tomorrow is anymore. And tomorrow cha- tomorrow changes like every few months. Well, yeah. and, and tomorrow There is no tomorrow. No future. <laughs> the future is where we will spend the rest of our lives. Yeah, the rest of our miserable lives. Um, <laughs> tomorrow used to be uh, an exciting and fun place. And now it's a sort of nebulous and arguably... Um, dystopian sinister place <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know like anything negative yeah uh, you know just the idea of the singularity and, and transhumanism it's a, yeah that's scary territory yeah, you know, I was waiting like, for the first one and it's that Johnny Depp thing yeah yeah I think there probably were other ones but that's the first one I've really I mean you could maybe count some Philip K Dick but this is the real like you know um, uh, Ray uh, what's him what's his name Kurzweil, Kurzweil uh, yeah you know kind of transhumanist yeah. idea of uploading your personality to a computer. Yeah. Uh, I was a little concerned when I was driving down uh, Wilshire the other day and I saw a billboard uh, advertising, what's it, what, Transcendence? Is that yeah, what it's called? Yeah, I think so. 
and it said uh, something about Dr. Will Caster was just a man or something. And I was like, oh, boy. His name is Will Caster, like he's casting his will into a machine. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> it's wearing its symbolism on its sleeve. I'm yeah. worried already. Yeah, so it's got to slap you in the face. Although, <laughs> I think that came up because we just told, my wife and I told you we really liked um, uh, Budapest Grand Hotel. Oh, I love that Or movie. Grand Hotel Bud- Grand Hotel Budapest, I think it's called. Anyway, yeah. I, I, how could you not like it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I was absolutely... Jaw was dropped open, just glee. It was, it was just giddy. It was so fun to yeah. watch. Um, I didn't notice, and you know, this this is an example I was telling Patrick of not talking about anything to do with anything that this show is supposed to be talking about. But there was a review of it, and it's what the reviewer said was that the thing switches um, um, aspect ratios yeah. depending on the. I didn't even notice that in the film. Oh, really? I didn't, for some reason, I was so taken by the film, I didn't even notice. And I, I, I would get in trouble at work if I didn't notice that. <laughs> I, I hey, did notice that. but <laughs> Hey, it went from 185 to 133. What right. the hell just happened? Well, and apparently it, was, uh, it wasn't just random. It was like whatever aspect ratio was sort of dominant in the time frame that was yeah. taking place. Yeah. Um, I, I just thought that was, was friggin' brilliant. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, and it's a daring choice for a director in, you know, nowadays to shoot a movie in the, you know, square, four three format. Yeah. You know, it's it, everybody wants the widescreen now, the IMAX. Yeah. You know, and he's think, doing something yeah, for a TV I think in, screen. Yeah. In film, it's all four by three, but then the in TV, sixteen by nine, they squish it so that when they 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 pull it back, you know, when, uh, the, unless you have the aspect ratio stretched out on your TV, it's that's all sixteen by nine. But I think on film, it's like one three three or one seven eight or two three five or any other weird things in between. I think there's yeah. two four zero and then like uh, some other ones. But yeah, it's like uh, for some reason, I I guess you noticed that. But I was just told, I was so enchanted with the film, I didn't even notice that. I I really want to see it again because it was so dense with uh, yeah just jokes. And like, Dense like, with jokes and like every scene was like every scene was like an entire art director's worth of of film <laughs> in one scene. Yeah, everything is just like concentrated. Uh, just a, a masterful tone, like he really nailed. Like he chose his tone, and he stuck with it to the end. Yeah, it was it was, and it was funny as hell. Yeah. There are a couple of reviews. It's like, why are people swearing in this film? They're supposed to be all high class. It's like, what? You know how high class people from the 1930s spoke in private? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't think if they got mad, they would start swearing like they do in like Adrian Brody and, and uh, Ralph Fiennes and everybody do in the film? The funny thing is, a little kid never does. I think he swears once in the entire film. I can't remember. Maybe. Anyway, he's, he's very straight. He does the thing very straight. It's wonderful. They're all very Wes Anderson characters. They are. There's, there's but not something... like this overdone cuteness that people keep complaining about that never bothered me. But maybe he's created his own genre of the way characters should be, so people are used to it now. He's <laughs> <laughs> he he's uh, definitely one of those auteurs. He has his his uh, signature style. Yeah. I, I just saw a thing the other day. I think it was a special feature for one of the DVDs that's coming out. Yeah. But um, this guy took a bunch of scenes from his movies and drew a center line down the middle. And, like, his movies have this very centered compositional style. Yes. Yeah. 
It's and like Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah. Or the Cohen brothers, actually, who I think are very influenced by Kubrick. Mm-hmm. And uh, this article that accompanied this thing, you know, went on about how it, it's actually very innovative. You know, the idea of centering a subject in today's cinema is sort of like, oh, my God, that's... You yeah. don't do that. You yeah. just don't do that. Yeah. And with a wide-angle lens? No. Yeah. But, you know, he does, and he does it to great effect. Yeah. Even in uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, if you ever saw that. Yeah. Um, he he has the same... A few times. S- I saw it at work a couple times after it was in the theater, so I got to see it a few times, so yeah. Like, he... You're right. I never really thought about did that. did the same right. visual style, and those violate... You know all these animation principles of yeah doing rule of thirds and everything and, you know all that and and but it works yeah totally works yeah <clears throat> I don't know why it works why would it work just because it's one it's consistent yeah and and I think too it's just there's so much going on and the, there's so much design going on in the rest of it you don't have negative space going on there's there's stuff everywhere yeah 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 I think I think. I don't know, something about his movies, I, I feel like I'm... Welcome to uh, Radio Mysterioso, the film edition. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I don't know, I feel like I'm watching his, his brain coming out on on yeah. the, the film, as opposed to a lot of the movies out there. They're just sort of movies. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that, I like those too. Yeah, I like some of them. But the thing is, when something sticks out like that, you're just like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. Um... Speaking of Kubrick, I just saw 2001 at the Arclight a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah, they're, they're screening, like, you know, Oscar films or something like yeah. that. or I don't know who picked them, but... I gotta say, I was blown away to see that on the big screen like that. Yeah, I saw it on the big screen once when I was in college. Yeah. They, like, they ran it at the Cinerama Dome. Yeah, that's where I saw it. And they ran it before the dome got... Ch- do they still have the main dome theater? They do, yeah. don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, and I, I saw... Uh, yeah, I saw 2001 there in, like, you know, they, they showed, I think, like, Clockwork Orange and 2001 within a week of each other. And so I went there, because I was in college, I was like, they're showing Kubrick on a big screen. And, there, you know, there, there was just video then, there was, like, VHS tape. So you go see it on the screen, it was amazing. And it, the, the funny thing is, also remember, I also remember seeing Back to the Future there in first-run release on the <laughs> Dome wow. screen, too. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad they kept the the, the big the big uh, screen. They pr- I guess they have a special lens still in there so that they can show the thing. Yeah, they on the they uh, apparently do Cinerama whatever, print for them revivals, and they show how the West was won and yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. A friend of mine said he saw 2001 when it came out, and they played at the Cinerama Dome. Yeah, and halfway through the movie, he's like, "Where is everybody?" Like, the theater was empty. And he stood up and he realized it wasn't empty. Everyone was laying down, tripping on acid in the aisles, <laughs> watching the movie. <laughs> that was the movie everybody had to go see on acid. I've, I've never seen it on acid. Maybe I'm missing out. I don't know. I, I don't know. Definitely <laughs> acid-worthy, I would think. I told Patrick I was not going to write down any questions, mm-hmm. and I haven't. We've been talking for, I don't know, probably 40 minutes. Um, and you can't hear any of the music if I'd play it, and I wanted and I want to play uh, Contact E music. You said you hadn't heard of Molly Thompson. No, I haven't. It, it, I, I, would these headphones gross you out? No. no okay, no. I, 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 I want to let Patrick hear this Molly Thompson song because it's I love it. She was a uh, she may still be alive, a, a British Contact E, 
I believe in the late 50s. And at the beginning of, oh, it was, obviously it wasn't uh, um, uh, Farewell, Good Brothers. It was another, I can't remember the name of the film. It was another film that sort of kind of dealt with contactees. And at the beginning is this woman, do you remember it? I, I may have seen this clip, actually. Yeah. It's uh, and she's she's like just playing on a little guitar and it's black and white and it was obviously yeah. shot at like some UFO convention mm-hmm. somewhere. And uh, I found online somebody uploaded her entire album. Wow! So there's like you know two or three, um, real contactee type songs and there's kind of like new ageish things. But she wrote and played the guitar on all of these. And I played this at the beginning, but I wanted Patrick to hear it. This uh, song, Cockeyed Ballad. So. I'm going to hand those headphones to him, and it's only coming through the the side that has the lead on it on on your so you, all you'll hear it from is in your left ear. But this is "Cockeyed Ballad" by Molly Thompson. There's a cockeyed feeling in the world today. The power politics is here to stay. But China, Russia, and the USA, boy, don't let them fool you. Take a look at this world of ours Just one month for when we see the stars Other planets got no color bars Cause they've got perspective Gangs and Ruskies put men into space But it's all a mad politician's race One upmanship in this year of grace It makes you giggle Population stands and stares While men in capsules explore upstairs While we can't even manage our own affairs Some cheap colonization Besides, they got people on Venus and Mars They got lads and lasses, they got Mars and bars And they got better transport than four-wheel cars Have you ever seen them? Most flying saucers whisking through our skies Must take some power to make them rise But government departments just hide their eyes And call them meteors With all the lies that they print and shout The general public has its work cut out Figuring what it's all about But just you keep on trying I suppose you know why I'm telling you this So you won't shriek or shake your fist When you discover Martians do exist They're real nice fellas I know cause I met one a week ago His ship came down for an hour or so He talked to me but then he had to go Real interested I was Got brothers on Venus and Saturn it seems Fly their ships on magnetic beams They wear one-piece suits You can't see any seams But apart from that They're just like us Too bad somebody already used that song In a documentary uh, Damn it Yeah, that's that's my immediate uh, take on things uh, whenever, <laughs> I, whenever I come across something new I'm like, how can I use that? Well, I think you could still use it. I mean, how many people have seen that other documentary? I don't know. Um, and plus, like I said, there's there's uh, about two or three more specifically Contact T-type songs on the album. Yeah. It's called From Worlds Afar. Well, there's not a lot of Contact T stuff out there, film or music or anything. So I think any documentary or movie is going to have a fair amount of you know common yeah. threads in it. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, I don't know how many movies I've seen that, uh, what's his name, the Air Force General or Colonel giving the 
talk in 1952 about the Air Force is very interested in. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I should know which one. I know what you're talking about. I should know Sanford. who that is. General Sanford. Oh, okay. I, I, I think. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. He's got like dark I, hair and kind of squiddy yeah. eyes, and he's sitting kind of at a table with yeah. a microphone. And yeah, I've seen that so so many times. Yeah, and yeah. Everybody in that uses clip that, that. I sent you. I I used it. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm going to use it. Yeah, that's that's fine. Um, you know, it's. Have you seen that bit of film on? No, I can't remember his name because I, I put him up on the. Uh, what the hell is going on out there? They're having some kind of music festival. I keep hearing we. I can we can both hear this person singing outside, like uh, amplified. It, it's maybe there's a political campaign with their speaker on the roof or something. I don't maybe. Know. Um. Lee. Oh, I can't remember his last name. Anyway, there's a there's some film. I was at work years ago, and the UCLA film archive would come in and transfer a lot of their stuff every once in a while they would be transferring things one time they transferred an entire lenny bruce tv show from 1958 from new york that nobody had seen since then so i was like i was amazed by it um but another thing they transferred i believe was this old film of this uh guy um oh god what's his name it was lee something lee crandall c-r-a-n-d-a-l-l have you seen that little piece of film I don't believe so. I, I, a, I've come across the name, but I yeah, really... he, he was. I think he is from out here. But there's um, there's some sound film of him speaking at a convention with like candelabras um, on each side of the stage, very strange, with candles going, and he's just talking about how the space people are and how wonderful they are, and you know the, the contactee message. They're good fellas. Yeah, they're real nice fellas. And the other thing, the other segment of the film, it's it's uh, no sound. It's it's uh, silent. Um, I guess they were going to put film some sound in it later, but it's just him sitting like in a uh, a, a motor a trailer home in a trailer park somewhere in 1950 something, and a guy comes and knocks on the door. Have you I seen have it? I have seen this. Yeah. Yes, I guy have. comes and knocks on the door, and they go sit down, and he's like got this big dumb smile on his face uh -huh. talking to the guy. And then you you see him like say, "Okay, just a minute." Like and he takes a piece of paper and he writes on it and he puts it down on. And I haven't seen this. I don't think anywhere else. He puts it down on the on the like mantle. I mean, on on like a, a table in the uh, in the motorhome or trailer home. And then he gets up and walks out the door. And then the, there's a shot of the note. It says, "Dear folks, gone to Venus. All is well, Lee." <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it. Yeah. Uh, that, that well, you know, going back to what you were saying, like uh, why I'm interested in the contactees. That's why. It, it's like it's just. I don't know. It's the aw shucks factor. It's like yeah. Mayberry in space. I don't yeah. know. Uh, <laughs> you can't imagine. Uh, you know. Oh, sorry. Betty and Barney Hill leaving a note like that. No. <laughs> Gone to Venus. All is well. Betty and Barney. <laughs> Wow, there's a nice loud one. So now we've got sirens and religious singing and... A few times we've been up here and people have been fighting on the street. We could hear that. Is there one of those strip mall churches around here? Yeah, I think there might be some Pentecostal churches around here. Because uh, what they do is they find places that with cheap rent and they don't care if it's a storefront or whatever. Right. And they just they set up their church yeah. there. That's what it sounds like. The folding chairs and 
Oh, I don't have this here. It's another recording I got from somewhere. It's just a guy, they, some guy's interviewing me. He goes, how many trips have you taken to uh, Venus? He goes, oh, about two or 300, I guess. He goes, well, there's, is there any special place that they pick you up? I mean, is there a landing pad at your house or something? And he says, no, they came and picked me up in a car. <laughs> I've seen that clip. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I've never seen Have you seen picture with it? Uh, yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah, well, it's in, it's in Farewell Good Brothers. Oh, is that where it's from? Yeah. That That must have been, yeah. They came and picked me up in a and, car. And this guy, just, he's just standing there, and he has this very sort of like, he's telling about the fish he caught. Like, <laughs> no, like, people from Jupiter. They just come pick me up in a car. Did you yeah. say that somebody said it's as easy as getting hit by a car? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I came across an interview with George Van Tassel. Okay. And, and there's this uh, very... He's being interviewed by this very incredulous, I don't know, if he's Scottish or he had some sort of uh, bro going on. Yeah. And he's like, I've got a man in the studio <laughs> who says he's been taken up by flying saucers. <laughs> this crazy bastard. And, and uh, you know, they gave him the secrets to a time machine. And, uh, you know, cut to George. So tell us, George, tell us about this flying saucer. Well, it's as easy as getting hit by a truck. <laughs> You're the victim of the circumstance. One minute, it just happens. <laughs> like, just the contrast in the personalities. Is yeah, that and priceless. what a metaphor. Easy as getting hit by a truck. <laughs> yeah. I don't was, know if I'd want to be hit by a truck. It is a very w- strange way to begin the uh, interview. And, and then he, he starts saying, uh, his was a little more exotic. Uh, then they came up and picked him up in a car. He uh, he walked out over to the uh, ship and got sucked up into like a gravity beam that went up yeah. into the ship. And uh, so he's getting the, picked up by a gravity beam. The host is like, "Oh, so you just whisked right up in there, then?" <laughs> <laughs> I wish I get an interview like that. I probably have a lot more listeners and be getting paid for this. Why? Well, I I, <laughs> I got to hand it to to Van Tassel. He just took it like, yeah, okay, I get this a lot. Have your laugh. <laughs> I mean, well, that that's the other thing that I I think is so amazing. These people had to face this constantly. Yeah. Um, when when I when I uh, said I was making this documentary, one of my closest friends came to me and said, uh. Should I be worried? Do I need to call the tinfoil hat brigade? <laughs> and, and I'm like, what? what? No. I mean, why? That's like asking me, I, I tell you, I'm going to go down and interview, like, Richard Ramirez. Oh, are, are, are you going to go out and start killing people? Right, exactly. What does that have to do with anything? I just want to talk to him. Yeah. I, and Well, well it's, it's, it that, talks to something deeper that's going on. Yeah, that, with the subject. Yeah. Well, and, and and beyond that, I mean, why does it mean you're crazy if you even acknowledge this stuff exists? You know, so, um, you know, I, you know, it's a strange sort of courage, I guess, that these people had that you know they kept going with these stories for years. Yeah. And despite being, uh, you know, it's a little. I was ringy. I, yeah, I was like, can, it's just this monitor. Oh, okay. But if you get too close to it, it's it's a it's a feedback thing. It's really high pitched feedback. Ah, uh, there it is. Oh yeah. I just have to stay like right out of whatever magnetic field that comes out, like right about to here. 
the, the <laughs> monitor that doesn't work. Yeah. I should probably just unplug them, but you can, can you sort of, yeah, you can sort of kind of hear us. Um, I'm just doing this so I can hear yeah. that the recording's still going. Because usually I just have it on the monitors, and it's weird because you usually go to a radio studio and everybody has headphones on. Right. And this, there's not enough head, well, there's a couple here. Uh, headphone jacks or headphones, actually, for that matter. Because if we left headphones that here, they would be broken or disappear very quickly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this, this definitely reminds me of the uh, the college radio station I used to work at back in the day. What did you have a show? Uh, no, I I just apprenticed with a regular the the actual DJ. Yeah. For a little while, um, I was on the uh, like Friday at. 11 at night or something till 1 in the morning shift and we when everybody was out partying yeah and it was just sort of play whatever you want and uh, you know I at the time well I'm I I'm not my my musical taste is not up to snuff you know it's it's not varied I'm not like uncovering the new latest thing yeah so I was very self-conscious about it but this station had a huge uh, back library. room, Li- well, you know, the library was just yeah. enormous. So I'd just go out there and just start pulling things off the shelves. Yeah, this looks the, interesting. Yeah, I played the soundtrack to Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, I played some Meat Puppets, and then yeah. I started getting calls. Like you knew when stuff was popular. Could, yeah, you call like, dude, more Meat Puppets. Like, <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> here you go. Yeah, I think the couple times I've one time I've kind of worked. Not worked, but I was at a legitimate state. It was KUCI, the the Irvine, UC Irvine. I was I took a course there in doing radio, and when you finish the course, you're supposed to like start pumping, trying to get a show. No, um, and I couldn't. I, I I gave up because I was like I had to drive for an hour and a half just to get <laughs> there and back. Right. So it didn't work out too well. But the thing is, while I was there, there was so much. I mean, the the, the library there was all this vinyl and all these yeah. CDs. You could just go in and. Just, Start messing around and listen to stuff. I discovered all kinds of new music that way. And KBLT was the same way. They they didn't have nearly the size of the pirate excuse me. The pirate station here, but the stuff they had was really concentrated. I mean the um I think uh uh Mike Watt from uh from the Minutemen had a show on that station. No. So he would bring a lot of stuff in. And you know, one time the the one time the Red Hot Chili Peppers played on one of the shows. Oh wow! They just they just walked up the hill to you know the girl's apartment that was there, set up in the living room, and played for some guy's show. <laughs> wow! So either that or maybe it was just Flea, but at, at least it was a couple of the Chili Peppers, I think. Oh, anyway, nice. they came and played for a show, which was kind of amazing. But yeah, it's and the library here is there's a lot of stuff, but the stuff I've gone through it hasn't really interested me that much. <laughs> And the other thing is, I'm getting old. And the other thing is, have you listened to any of my music shows? No. It's all outsider music and weirdos and people that can't oh, do really? anything right. And you know, the, the, all the people that just and I don't. It's funny. It's it's like the contactee thing. It's funny and you can laugh at it, but you also think, you know, out of, you know, this, these are the one or two people out of you know a million that actually said, oh, I'm just gonna. I don't care what people think. I'm just gonna go out and do it. Yeah. And yeah, they suck. But, you know, to, to varying degrees. But the thing is that, that I guess I admire, it's like Ed Wood. It's like this, it's, that's why yeah. I have Ed Wood at the beginning of my show. Yeah. It's because you, you just have to admire, like Johnny Depp in the, in the Ed Wood biopic yeah. thing. 
That's exactly how I think of Ed Wood. Yeah, exactly. Or any of these people. Just like, you know, you know it sucks. Like, I don't care. I'm going to do exactly what I want. It's going to be great. <laughs> there, there's a certain something you, ha- you have to respect about that. You know, people <laughs> who just, they do it. You know, they're, 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 they don't, they don't care what people think. It, yeah. It's just a, I, I, I wish I had a little bit more of that myself. Yeah, maybe that's it. I mean, I just feel like. Yeah, I, I, it's an inspiration. Yeah, it's like, wow, I, I can't make music. I can't even make bad music like these people. But they <laughs> went out and did it. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and to varying and some of them, it's like it's terrible, but it's fun to listen to. Yeah, you know, Molly Thompson there. It's that's that that would be considered outsider music. Yeah, definitely. But it's just her singing about space people, and you know, ninety nine percent of the population more is not going to care or listen to it. But I love it, and it it makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it it just I don't know what it is. It's it's just I re I I hear this stuff, you know, that sort of uh, folk musicy sort of. Stuff like that, and it's just like, huh. I imagine I'm sitting like on a creek, yeah, <laughs> you know, just in the woods, autumn leaves on the ground, just, huh. you know, it's <laughs> yeah. very nice, yeah, um, and uh, yeah, that's, I guess to bring it back to contactees, that that's what I what I love about the the stories, and that's what I want to bring into it. And another thing, I'm I'm sort of uh uh kind of trying to, to pose against it is the sort of dire um, seriousness of the serious uh, UFO researchers. Yeah. You know, like the people were dying. You know, the, the Mantell case, the pilot who died chasing UFO and, you know, the abductions and, you know, all these horrible stories and the Air Force was covering things up and, yeah. you know, Roswell wasn't a weather balloon and, you know, all these, like, dire things. And then contrast that with, hey, let's all just get along, you know? Let's, yeah. I'm here from Venus. Let's <laughs> chill. <laughs> you know? Like, like these are people you want to hang out with. Yeah. That's funny that you say that, because you, people are, it's like, would you rather hang out at a skeptic convention or a believer's convention? It's like, I don't agree with either of them, but I'd much rather hang out at the believer's convention because they're a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah. The skeptic people are just, they're kind of like a hipsters or something. It's like, oh, <laughs> we're, we're way above that. I we, didn't that's believe. A, yeah, we're not going to believe that crap. I didn't believe in UFOs before it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, I, I, I... Much rather go to a contact E-Fest than a, than a skeptic, you know, a, a, you know, a James Randi Foundation yeah, con- absolutely. Con- I, convention. I wrote a whole... Um, a diatribe that I dare not send because I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not the best debater. <laughs> so yeah, put but, it on Tumblr. But to uh, <laughs> uh, Phil Plate, you know the bad astronomer. Yes. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yes, I am. Um, I've written bad things about bad astronomy too. It's like, <laughs> go ahead and shoot the fish in the barrel because you're not you're not looking at very much. You're looking the, at the part that fits in with your preconception. Exactly, and you know I. I love his blog, and I, yeah. I you know, I love the, his serious take on things. But yeah. when it comes to the UFO subject, I feel like he's doing the same thing that you know another uh, loved Carl Sagan, but he did the same thing. Yeah, you know, he, he 
just shot then like you said shot the fish in he the was barrel. a little less nasty than a lot of the other yeah, skeptics yeah. in fact i think he started out being a little more sympathetic and then later he just saw so much junk that yeah. he finally just said Ugh. i actually have a, a clip that and I it's probably because he was a stoner yeah that's true that a was big just stoner on carl the, sagan uh, the origin of cosmos they say yeah okay yeah makes sense yeah I I actually have a clip of a very young Carl Sagan from 1968, I think, or uh, 60s sometimes. And he's being interviewed about UFOs and stuff. And he's um, talking about the contact myths. There are people who, <laughs> you know, and he sticks his tongue in his in his cheek like he can't believe what he's about to say, you know. Claim contact with people from Venus, <laughs> and these people, you know, yeah. in his very Sagan-y way. Yeah, you should put that in the documentary if you can. I well, I'm I'm trying to track down the. Uh, it's a CBS thing. Okay. I'm trying to track it down. Yeah. Um, you know, I have the low res YouTube clip that I found, and uh, there, there's some, it's him and then some guy with an eye patch sitting next to him. <laughs> I, I don't know what that's all about, but they just the occasional cutaway to this guy with an eye patch going, yeah. mm, lighting his pipe. <laughs> um, and he's got an eye patch. He's got a pipe. He's probably got a. Does he have any facial hair? Maybe he does. He has a beard. Yes. Okay. He's a very serious guy. And uh, you know, and then cut back to Carl Sagan. He's talking, and this puff of smoke wafts by. <laughs> <laughs> but he he did uh, bring up what I thought was a really interesting uh, argument. Uh, he talks about he basically describes a contactee story you know, beautiful people blonde hair they're wearing white robes they come in peace I've heard this in another context this isn't UF these aren't UFOs this is religion you know and then he goes on an attack yeah. about how you, you can't really um, assess these things scientifically because they're not scientific they're religious yeah kind of like you were talking about uh, when, earlier today that it's a very spiritual phenomenon phenomenon it's a faith based phenomenon yeah. And it's true. He's right. You can't really assess yeah. it scientifically. Obviously, people aren't living on 800 PSI or 8,000 PSI breathing sulfuric acid yes. on Venus. And yes. they look just like us. Yeah. You know, but, you know, that said, there's still, I don't know, there's an appeal. And yeah. it, And I interrupted you when you said you wrote something that uh, to fill plate or in oh. response to him. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, he I'm had sure a, people are going. What did you interrupt him for? This sounds like it's going to be a good one. Well, I uh, God, I don't even remember what I had in there. But uh, you know, it's just basically uh, we're, we're talking about frustration with skeptics. Yeah. And you know, I was reading on his blog. Uh, he had this whole thing about if UFOs are real, why don't astronomers see more of them? And they do. And that was my <laughs> thing. I was like, okay, A, they do. <laughs> B, uh, if you're a scientist and you're in a scientific field and your reputation, like you're dealing with people like this all the time, yeah. who like if you mention UFOs, they're like, oh, my God. You're not going to tell people yeah, what you'll, you saw. You'll, you'll lose your, uh, your uh, grant. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and, and then... Uh, going into like with the crypto terrestrial sort of motif, you know, you're assuming that UFOs and and these sort of phenomenon are aliens from Zeta Reticuli coming down and big metal ships entering our atmosphere. What if they're not? What if 
<laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because unfortunately that's how that's the only way that a skeptical i mean a fundamentalist skeptic as i was discussing right. earlier would think of it if you even suggested anything else they'd be like whoa 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 you're even like you're further off the deep end than the ufo people you know, and, and that's really bizarre because a lot of science is now leading toward these ideas of, you know, multiverse theories and, and things like that. You know, quantum uh, things that easily get twisted to, you know, conveniently fit a fact. It can be very yeah. easily become pseudoscience. But yeah. at the same time, it's suggesting a whole range of physics in a world that we don't understand yet. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Phil Plate, again, on one of his blog, debunked uh, astrology because there was no energy being emitted from the stars that could account for this blah, 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 whatever. And I'm no, I'm not a fan of astrology, personally, but I really did not like his debunking of it. I, I thought it was sloppy, you yeah. know, and, and there's an arrogance to it, to a lot yeah. of the, the skeptical arguments out there, the, as you, the fundamentalist skeptics. Yeah. And... I was always of the opinion that skepticism meant reserving judgment yeah. until all the facts are in. Yeah. But it, it in a lot of modern contexts, it's become, you know, debunking. Like, you're yeah. wrong, and here's why. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, they're coming at it from, this is I, how I know what you wrong. mean, yeah. I don't use debunk because a lot of things are bunky and they need debunking. <laughs> well, that's true. However... The the reason I say um, fundamentalist skeptic, I, I basically borrow from Anna, Robert Anton Wilson, if you know who that is. Mm -hmm. um, he said, you know, the, the problem isn't the the skeptics, and the problem isn't the scientists, and the problem it's the it's the fundamentalist mindset. Yeah, where you're, you you you've uh, you've sort of got your mind made up, not really your mind made up beforehand, but if it doesn't fit into this model, then it is, you know, at at worst. Okay, at best a uh, a mistake or um, or and at worst it's a it's a big fat lie and a delusion and all that. So you know there's no there's nothing in there. You know somebody says oh there's people living on Venus. What physically? Yes, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most likely that's not true. Yeah, uh, I don't know what you know. You know, do they live underground in you know air conditioned cities or something? <laughs> what what exactly are you talking about here? But if you know, if somebody says you know, I like you said, the guy said I, you know, my friend and my my, my friend and I were walking. And there's this big disc up in the sky, and it looks metallic, and it's so close that we can't believe it. And it's like, who knows? Maybe. Yeah. I feel I'd feel more confident believing that person than a lot of the contactee stories. Oh, absolutely. However, you know, the contactee stories are interesting as for from your point of view, I'm sure as sociological and a religious and a, you know, just from the point of view of just being a human. Yeah. And I think a lot of the skeptical people forget that if you you know, I know what the argument that real, uh, people always bring up. If we brought then Bud Hopkins said this, if we brought all this in, this stuff up in a court of law, all the mm -hmm. um, uh, evidence we have for abduction, there's no way people could argue with it. And it's like, yeah, there is, because most people haven't had that experience, and there's no way to prove it. It's like, if you have a murder, people have seen people murdered. It's happened throughout our history. Robberies, any any kind right. of rape, anything. <clears throat> but being abducted by aliens, that is not available on demand. It, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 yeah. the, rules for, the rules for proving that I don't think exist yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, how do you prove that? I mean, anything can be faked now. I mean, yeah. If you have 
you know, high def video footage of that. People are gonna like, uh, I can see the seams, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I can. I can suit. see. Yeah, that or you know, I can see where the I, I can see the edge of the the mat or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I've seen stuff like that, and it you know it's funny and whatever. And sometimes on the blog I used to have with uh, that I worked on with Nick, I would put up stuff that was obviously fake if I thought it was something cool yeah. about it. It's like I know this is fake, but it looks really great. People would complain, "Why do you put this fake stuff up?" I said, "Well, look at it; it's wonderful." I you know, uh, and I, I don't care if it's fake. I think it's really funny that somebody's trying to pass it off as real. Well, it, it's it, fascinating. It becomes an interesting social experiment. Um, on one of my old jobs, uh, I told you I one of my one of the things I many things I animated on was the Ancient Aliens series. Yeah, and uh, I had to do. You know, at the beginning of each season, they would just want sort of generic shots that they could just, the editors could throw in, you know, wherever. And so I created, I took, like, uh, footage from my parents' trip to Machu Picchu. I took all these, like, home videos that I had and, you know, crappy videos. And I I created a lot of fake UFO videos because I really wanted to see if they would go viral. Like, oh, my God, we've never seen this video before. What is this? Yeah. They never did. I was very disappointed. Oh, damn it. But a different thing happened that was really unsettling. Um, It was uh, like season one of the show. We were doing uh, something about uh, Teotihuacan in Mexico and how it lines up with Orion and the face on Mars. And I don't know. It was was this big epic thing that I can't even remember how it works. (laughs) Um, And later in like season four we were revisiting that and going into greater detail and uh on that show i often didn't get a lot of direct um direction like this is what happens you know there was a certain amount of it but there was a lot of speculation like how would something like this work and how do you portray it and and all that so i had to do a lot of research on my own so i get on the google and I type all these keywords in, and I find a website that has all this evidence show, you know, proving that this is true and how it works and everything. I'm like, awesome. Finally, somebody who knows what they, they're talking about, I can, you know. I click on the website, and they are using my graphics that I produced for the original yeah. <laughs> uh, series uh, to prove their point. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's a snake eating, eating its tail that I'm now researching my own stuff <laughs> to, you know, to figure out what to do next. It, yeah. Did, it did you the contact waters. them and ask them what the hell was going on? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. I, I, I find it fun. It's like I have no ownership of these things. Yeah. But I, I do... It really does... Yeah, uh, that would be my reaction, too. It's like, wow, this is hilarious. I wonder if they can take it any further. <laughs> Call them, my name is Jonas. <laughs> I have information you might find interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I've never... You know what? We never talked about the Straith letter today during the interview. Oh, yeah. Damn it. Well, we can do well, another one someday. I mean, you know, if you want to p- do a pickup on it. May have to if my... When I uh, check the technical specs, I may have goofed it all up. Uh, your interview was fantastic, by the way. Okay, you, thank you, you. You hit on so many things. Uh, I, wh- I wh- felt like I didn't, but that's good. Actually, you know, what What I thought was really um, fantastic, and I'm relatively new to this interviewing thing. Um, you know, I haven't done a whole ton of it, so I, I'm slowly getting a, a grasp on, on the the 
things you need to pay attention to. And one of the things is if you know who you're talking to, you can sort of customize your questions to that person. And there, now you got three sirens. This is a three siren, three alarm night. Yeah. Um, there are some people that, you know, for my documentary, I need people to just describe what happened. I, yeah. I need people to speculate on what it could have been or what the socioeconomic ramifications of those things are. Yeah. And a lot of the questions that I had uh, originally for you were mere exposition. You know, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. But shortly after we started talking, I realized that those questions would be wasted on you. Because Why? your um, insights... You your your answers were far more interesting in in terms of the uh, your well that's nice to hear like I the guess. social ramifications and yeah. in just like uh, what was one specifically that you mentioned that I really liked was about we were talking about how um, the UFO culture has changed over the decades and back in the fifties it was a more communal sort of thing but now there's no real need with the internet and greater communication, there's no real need for um, conventions and conferences, and, and it's much more a self-centered thing. Yeah. And that is a fundamental way in which that culture has shifted. Yeah. And I thought that was a, a, a fascinating, uh, insightful observation. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not the only one to make that insight. I, I may have stole it from Nick or something. But, but even, anyway, even so, it's, it's the kind I of stuff not... we talk about on the show all the time, yeah. so it just came to mind, you know? Yeah. I... Uh, so, I mean, long story short, I'm very happy with the interview. Well, good. So. Thank you. Um, so, is, from the beginning of this project to now, did your ideas change about what the hell was going on with the contactees? Or did you get more <laughs> sympathetic or, you know, less? Or, you know, how, how you know, wh what's the thing that, like, if your thinking did change, what changed it? Or what's the most significant thing? Um... I, I think going into it, I was intrigued, but mostly sort of looked at it with a, a tone of like, oh, those naive people in the 50s. Um, and because I wasn't around. <laughs> so I wasn't either. It's it's easy to watch the movies and, and, yeah. and, and kind of get this, this vision of what things were like. Yeah. And one of the things that has really changed for me is learning that, People were afraid, you know, the Cold War and, you know, we just bombed another country and we could be destroyed at any second. And that really messed with people's heads. Yeah. And, you know, and it was a new, unprecedented in the history of man kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I've gotten a lot more sympathetic to the nuance of, of these contactees and how they, they weren't monolithic. They had um, subtle changes, you know, between them. Some were more mystical, some were more nuts and bolts, and they had a certain common, um, whatever, fundamental aspect to it. But yeah. you know, the details were were very different, and that's where it started getting really complex and murky for me. Because at first, I was like, "They're making it up," you know, they're just trying to sell books, whatever. Yeah. Um, but the more I've learned, I'm like, maybe not. Um, I mean, to some extent, and certainly it's not global. I mean, some of them clearly were making it up. Some were yeah. maybe not all there. 
But a lot of them, you know, like you said, maybe they had an experience of some kind, and then that got reinterpreted and reimagined and then expanded upon. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the stories that really kind of threw me for a loop, I thought, was uh, when I was interviewing a guy who had known George Adamski. Um, <clears throat> I'd sort of written Adamski off as, you know, he had a street lamp. And you would throw it in the air and take a picture of it. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but this guy was, was actually at Palomar Gardens hanging. Uh, well, he wasn't hanging out with George. George was in his cabin. And this guy was down using George's telescope to look at the sky. And this is, uh, he, he tells this story in the doc. And this UFO lands, like, right next to George's cabin. Just and it's 50 yards away from him. And he runs toward it, and the thing just takes off, and then is gone, and disappears towards San Diego. And there are all these people around, and they start screaming and yelling, and oh my god. And he runs into George's cabin, and tells him what, what just happened. Yeah. And George is just sitting there going, oh, I wonder where all the ruckus was. And... That just made me think, well, wait a minute. If this guy was really a charlatan, if he was making all this up, would he be so blasé about something, you know, someone coming up to him like, you wouldn't believe what just happened? Like, oh, really? I mean, maybe he would. Maybe I'm being naive, but... Maybe. Maybe the guy that told you the story didn't know what was going on or yeah. was fooled or I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. But, you know, it's it's... There's a lot more to it than meets the eye, you know? You can't just say, these guys are nuts. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> you can if you don't want to have to, you know, get into the subtleties of it and the right. interesting just as a sociological phenomenon. Mm -hmm. You know. Um like like any of these things, like any subject. Um especially when it involves, you know, people's personalities and psychology and and uh groups of people, it's and a, and a history over a long period of time, it's hard to make a hard and fast, you know, uh, assessment of anything like yeah. that. And for something as strange as this, I mean, it, it's, I don't know if, you know, all the rules are out the window, but it's kind of like if you ask the questions like you are and look at the way that you are and going about it, it becomes far more interesting and engaging than just saying, I totally believe them and their Space Brothers here. Well, okay, right. that's great. I think you probably aren't thinking very carefully about this. Or, uh -huh. on the other hand, these people are all lying and delusional. I don't think that person's thinking very carefully about it either. But it makes it a lot easier to, to think about it or not mm -hmm. by just throwing something in a box and saying, okay. Yeah. I, it relieves you of so much responsibility, you know. But, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I just think it's, a, it's an amazing uh, sort of sect of history. You know, mm -hmm. or a sect of uh, a brand of Americana. Yeah. That is worth studying for the simple fact that uh, people were responding to something. Yeah. You know, and what was it they were responding to? You know, in that respect, it's no different than, you know, any uh, historical documentary you might see on, you know, Errol Morris doing a thing on. Yeah. It's, oh, do you like Errol Morris? Oh, I love Errol Morris. Me too. He, he uh, w when I first started out doing this, uh, I went to a lot of his movies to kind of like get an idea for tone and pacing and that sort yeah. of thing. 
What's your favorite Errol Morris? Um, Thin Blue Line was good. Yeah. But I also really like uh, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I love that movie. I love that documentary. Yeah. And uh, that, but, uh, that right there, it's about four kind of wacky people. Yeah. And it, it really explores them as people. Yeah, and it doesn't... The the documentary format is, uh, as Orson Welles shows in uh, uh, F, F for Fake, is the most dishonest type of filmmaking there yeah. is. But if you had to get somebody that was trying to be as honest as possible with their subject matter, I think Errol Morris comes pretty close. Yeah. Honest as possible with the person that he's covering and not trying to impose... Right. Yeah, the, the, what he imposes on it is a sense of wonder, at least in that film. Yeah. Not a sense of these people are crazy or these people are... No, you know, the only editorializing is look at these people. I'm going to put them up on stage for yeah. you. Well, that, that was what was so great about that movie was uh, he... Uh, you know, the guy who's obsessed with the naked mole rat. Yes. Like, that was his entire life. Yeah. And there's no mockery. There's no, like, this guy needs to get a life. Yeah. It was just like... This guy likes a naked mole rat. Let's <laughs> listen to him for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> or the lion tamer the guy. Lion tamer. Or the, what was the other, the topiary guy. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's the, there were four of them, right? Who's yeah. the last one? Well, mole rat, lion tamer, topiary. Oh, I don't know what the other one was. I can't remember now. Yeah. I'll have to throw that back. Did you see Netflix any of his, uh, he had a TV series where he just talked to people like, one guy that had won, like, Jeopardy a bunch of times or something like that, and he was, like, the smartest guy in the world or something like that. And, and I, I haven't seen it. It, is, it, it was is a on series. My, my Netflix queue. Yeah. I believe I I've might seen be sitting bits at and home right now. Okay. I've, been, I've seen bits and pieces of it on uh, YouTube, but I'd, I'd like to see the, the actual show. Yeah. Because um, it, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, let's let this person tell you all about themselves for a little while. I think... I, he even invented, a like, a, a, like a device where he yeah. could... Have the person looking, I think, directly into the camera, but that looks like the, he would put himself, his reflection yeah. in front of the camera, so they're looking at his reflection and talking right. to it. Uh, I, I believe, I uh, just heard there was an NPR story about him today. About Errol he, Morris. Yeah, interviewing him. Uh, he, he feels his best movie is, uh, what was the, Fog of War. Really? The, with uh, interviewing McNamara. Yeah. And I enjoyed that one, but... I think it's probably because it was his favorite to make, probably. Well, his, his thing was that uh, he, he makes movies about um, people who are deluding themselves. Yeah. And he's never made a more honest movie about a person who's deluded themselves more than Robert McNamara. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, I, I haven't listened to the interview. I just heard the promo yeah. when I was driving over. So. Oh, I'd like to hear that interview. And the, the what was the other thing that... The, oh, and you know Morris... And uh, was it Fassbender or somebody put all that money into our act of killing? Did you see that documentary? I didn't see it. I heard it was pretty hard to watch. Very hard to watch. <laughs> My wife and I went and saw it. What it is, if people are listening, don't know, look it up, act of killing. Um, it's, but I can't remember the nationality of the filmmaker, but he went to... Is it Cambodia? Uh, Might have been Cambodia. I don't think it was Cambodia. It was another Southeast Asian, I believe, island country, okay. and I should know, and I'm an idiot. Um, but what he did is he talked to people that basically were part of the kind of ruling um, political uh, class there. Not really 
ruling, but they there were the thugs for the the people that were in charge for a while, the dictatorship. And what they were is they, he went over and told them, the filmmaker said, would you like to make a film about the stuff that you did? Because they thought it was cool. It's like, oh, cool. It's like we can be like gangsters. We were like gangsters and, you know, because they'd seen American movies with gangsters in them. So they thought that was cool. But the guy that, that ran it, the guy that kind of the head guy that all the other like thugs looked up to, he was the main subject of the film. And I hope this isn't, you know, I hope that th- this wasn't some kind of strange, you know, manipulation of what was going on. But they told them, we're going to let you make a film about what you did. Just dramatize it. And they did it. And there's a lot of, you know, for, they've got like a, a dance sequence and, you know, a musical sequence. <laughs> and then they they decided, oh, we're going to do a sequence as us, as us dressed as a bunch of like, you know, 1940s looking, you know, uh, uh, American tough guy, criminal, like gangster guys. But the the main guy in it, as he goes through more and more of these reenactments, you can see him getting less and less enchanted with it. Hmm. And at the very first scene, they take him to this place where he said, oh, yeah, I strangle a lot of guys here. We'd like tie tie wire around their neck and then you'd pull it uh, around the leg of a table and you could strangle them very easily. You know, he talked about it, it was like nothing. Wow. And he gets a little less enchanted with it as as this whole feature goes on. Right near the end, they ask him to play one of the victims. And they hook him up with the thing around his neck and they, they start choking him. Just play around choking him. He freaks out. He like, he says, hmm. I got to stop now. I can't do this anymore. And, you know, and he gets wow. very, I mean, it, he's visibly really, really shaken. They take him up on the roof in that same spot at the end, on the roof of this building where he described how wonderful it was to torture people, how cool it was. And the whole time he's trying to describe it again, and he keeps act, he keeps retching like he's going to throw up and he can't talk anymore. Huh. And that's the end of the film. I've never walked out of a theater with... The silence walking out of that theater was deafening. <laughs> and nobody wanted to look at each other. Everybody was looking at the floor. I was too. Yeah. But the thing was, like, you know, if you can affect people that deeply with something, that that's why I think Morris and, was it Fassbinder? Fassbinder? Maybe. Had given all this money as executive producers to get this film finished because they were just like, oh, my God, this is the most important thing that's been done. Wow. And they're right. It's amazing. Everybody should see it. I don't know if I could watch it again, but everybody should see it. Because it's not play acting. It's not... Yeah. They're play acting, but they're play acting about something that was exceedingly that was serious that cost thousands and thousands of people their lives. And they didn't think it was any such a big deal. Except this one guy who starts to think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Right. Well, you know, when they it, when you're doing it, you're not seeing these as human beings. But when you're yeah. in a sort of ironic way, I would imagine, when you're pretending to do something you know and you're acting you're like looking for your motivation i don't know like it it starts to humanize especially when you're the victim yeah you know that would be uh yeah my my girlfriend talks about she went to the killing fields in cambodia and like she had to leave like it was just overwhelming I've, i've never done any sort of uh genocide (laughs) <laughs> Tour. Tourism. But uh, I, I just don't know if I could handle it. You know? It just I went to the uh, Museum of Tolerance a few years ago, and that was rough. 
know, they have a recreation of... Um, I've never been there, and it's two blocks from my house. Yeah. They have a recreation of... Oh, is that the uh, one in West L.A.? Yeah, the one in West L.A. Oh, okay. No, I haven't been to that one. Um, oh, yeah, the Holocaust Museum just over here. Yeah. yeah. Um, they have a, a mock-up of Auschwitz in this one over here. I think it's Auschwitz. And even though it's not real, it just all of a sudden you're like, ugh. Yeah. You know, you walk in that the gas chamber and it's... Yeah. Was it was it Errol Morris that did the documentary about the guy who designed the or he went to the gas chamber and yeah, said, "Oh, the, these weren't gas chambers." Well, first it what's it was called? It was called Mr. Death, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was about the Car- Leuchter was his name, but I can't remember his first name. Fred? Fred Leuchter, yeah. Yeah. He would he designed ever more efficient killing machines for people for governments and states in the United States that wanted to that still had the death penalty. And, you know, he designed a better gas chamber and designed a better, like, you know, guillotine, not guillotine, uh, 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 noose and all kinds of weird stuff saying that this is going to be or, you know, a different, you know, uh, lethal injection. I don't know why he's so fascinated with killing people, but, you know, he had gotten work doing that. And then, as you know, he he goes to Germany and he, he gets interested to find out if people in. And if there was any evidence in areas where, in places where they said that there were death camps, that there, what happened was going on. So he went and took samples from like the walls and things. Said I can't find any evidence of cyanide or anything in here, so I don't think it happened. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> you know, it of course all the, the uh, the the Holocaust denier people were, you know, they were they wet themselves, mm-hmm. and he got in a ton of trouble. Uh, the Canadian government, I think, tried to put him in jail, which was like, that's a little weird. I don't agree with him, but that's that's kind of taking it too far. Um, and the thing that I really didn't like about it, and I, I heard Morris later say, remember at the end they say, well, actually, you know, what it, it you know, they disproved what he, what Leuchter had found. They said, well, obviously he didn't. He took samples from something that's been exposed to the elements for like you know fifty something years. Right. There probably isn't going to be any, you know, and they, they took pains to explain this, um, which I thought was a cop out. Right. That, well, that's putting and, a judgment on. Yeah. Things. And then and Morris said the distributor absolutely said I had to do this or they weren't going to release the film. That's oh, the only reason it's in there. It's like, OK, yeah. I understand. It, it does seem like a kind of a weird move for someone like Errol Morris. Yeah. To, for anybody, kind of, really, but especially somebody like him where right. you would just like my audience is. I trust my audience not to think that I'm shilling for somebody. Right, right. Um, yeah, he he's he's pretty neutral. I it seems. In, yeah. In, 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 I'm I'm sure he's that was not. In an but... editing room, so I don't know what he what he cut out. But it always seems pretty uh, potent stuff. Yeah, Carlos Garza, one of our uh, listeners, looked it up. He says Werner Herzog. Executive producer, ah, director yeah, yeah, yeah. Joshua Oppenheimer is from Texas. He came and spoke at the uh, at the sh- at the screening at the New Art when I went and saw it, and talked about making it. I wish I'd recorded what he said. I went to see uh, Werner Herzog's Cave of Dream, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. It it was an okay movie, but it was in 3D, and it's about cave paintings. And I was like, okay, sure, I'll see it in 3D. I gotta <laughs> say that was. Uh, fascinating because uh, the walls have texture yeah. when you see it in, in 3D. And just this past summer, um, I went to France and I spent a couple days in uh, Les Aizies, which is where all these caves are. Yeah. And I went in and I saw some of these paintings, and it was one of the most profoundly emotional 
experience. I, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. I, was, I was expecting to look in and see some... Uh, some silly paintings on scratchings on the cave. Yeah, some mammoths and, and yeah. oxes, oxen on the cave why, walls why, or something. Why, would, why did it affect you that way? I don't know. It's like I, I, I saw it and it just hit me that... Well, there were two paintings next to each other. And one was like 34,000 years old. Another was 12,000 years old or Jeez. you know something like that. Yeah. And it occurred to me that to the guy who painted the painting that's 12,000 years old, this other painting was just as old to him as his was to me. Yeah. And like it just and the 34,000 years, that's like going back. That's yeah. like humanity in its infancy. Yeah. And like you were seeing the equivalent of a photograph cuz it was actually a, a Fairly realistically rendered. Yeah, that's the um, other thing. It's like thirty-four thousand years ago, somebody could do art this good. <clears throat> yeah, this realistic looking. And oh, and you have to remember, these caves didn't have uh, fluorescent lighting at the time. Yes. So, like, they're, they're doing in it there. By, yeah, they're in there with torches. Yeah. Or lit a fire or something. You know, and just rubbing it on the wall, and it it just, I something about it, it just hit me right in the gut, and I was just taken aback by it. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I just don't really... I never would have thought that would happen. Yeah, that, I wouldn't think reaction. so either. Now I want to go see it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there were people... There were other people there who were, you know, just outright crying. <laughs> it was a very affecting thing. Wow. I... I, I, I about... Four or five years ago, I wrote a piece called Are UFOs a, a Cosmic Art Project? <laughs> And the premise of the thing was, if you could create a piece of art that affects people the way that a UFO sighting does, you'd be a damn rich and famous artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it yeah. changes people's lives. It changes their outlook on things. It makes their life, you know, it, you know, it, uh, it causes divorces, you know? Right. It starts religions, you know, uh, you know, what's going on with this? It's hitting us. Wow. That's a loud this one. This is a, a four alarm show. Yeah. It hits you on so many levels. A UFO sighting, yeah. On a for some, some people, just got because far. It's funny. The thing is, and Jacques Vallée and a few other people have pointed this out. Maybe Keel too. The closer the thing is, the more you are affected psychologically, emotionally, and all that. Right. And you know, is that because you see more detail and it's not just this abstract thing, or is there some like weird field around it that screws with people's heads? Right. Who knows? Yeah, I. I always thought it would be an interesting thing. It's sort of, sort of along those lines, like, um, you know, uh, talking about these people possibly having real experiences that set them off. Uh, maybe there's some sort of, like, trickster spirit or, you know, some sort of geophysical element. You know, I'm just thinking science fiction concepts here. Yeah, that well, you, is... you should read um, The Rebirth of Pan by Jim Brandon. Yeah. That is exactly the premise of that book. Really? Yeah, go ahead. I mentioned it so many times on the show, and people's like, "I can't get that book. Would you quit mentioning it?" It's been out of print for many years. Ah, uh, but you know, what if, what if that is the um, the purpose of these things is to change people's lives and to guide or distract or you know whatever the the purpose may be. Maybe it's just to mess with us. I don't know, but yeah. Um, I actually think that's more compelling than the idea of people coming from, yeah. you know, Alpha Centauri B. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it's a scientific problem. 
or it yeah. doesn't. I don't know if it has a scientific solution. Right. I think it has a a psychological solution, maybe, or a sociological solution, or a uh so that combined with some sort of esoteric physics, which like dips into philosophy more than it does into right. the physical sciences. Right. You know, I I think maybe that's where it is. Hey, uh, go uh, Adam Go Rightly wrote. He said, I was thinking just a little, uh, oh, could I have a little background about how the interview came about? I guess the, the, your, your interview with me today, not not the one we're doing right yeah, now. Yeah, right. Um, actually, you know what it was? Um, years ago when I was do, uh, doing some research for, you know, I was looking for people to interview, I read Nick Redfern's contactees book. And he actually mentions you in the book at one point. Says yeah. my my good friend Greg Bishop. He knows everything about contactees. <laughs> so uh, I, I wrote your name down. I was like, got to talk to this guy at some point. And uh, the the whole film sort of fell away for a while. Work was busy and everything. Yeah. And uh, picked it up, and I was like, I actually found out that you lived in L.A. And I was like, why have I not? Yeah. <laughs> you looked you up yet? So, yeah. um, I I tracked you down from uh the show actually yeah from radio mysterioso and it, i'm i apologize because i don't look at the email for that show as much yeah. as i now i do because I, I was having problems with losing the one having problems with the server but two actually losing my uh uh what's uh the password for it over and over again and not remembering what the stupid password was and being locked out of my email account <laughs> and i could see what people wrote to me but i couldn't answer them uh. So finally, after you'd like called me and emailed me a couple times, like I really got to get this damn thing working again so I can <laughs> answer Patrick. So yeah, I did. So should I use the other email address for future correspondence? Yeah, probably. Okay. It's a lot easier for me to answer this right. one of the the, the Space Brother uh, the Space Brother Gmail address. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. No other comments. Okay. At least I know that one people are listening and two, and, and that it's working and and well, that's it. I I like to know sometimes. Everybody must really like this program because I've hardly got anybody writing in or saying anything. I don't see anything on the email for Radio Mysterioso. <laughs> and the only two people that are or, actually saying anything, which means that it's going out, is uh, are Carlos and uh, Adam Gorightly. So. Or people are like, who is this guy? Next station. No, they're not. <laughs> they, they won't do that because... Of the, you know what? I don't care... And I don't think you should either, and I'm sure you don't. How many people listen to the thing? I mean, I was just talking yeah. because it gives me an excuse to talk to you and to, like, talk about this thing that we both yeah. interested in. And, you know, t documentary filmmaking. I don't talk to anybody about documentary filmmaking on this show. Well, that, that's that's my kind of idea with, with my movie is, like, I'm not looking to you – know, this is going to be a major motion picture. This isn't going to be the next March of the Penguins. Yeah. You know, I, I just want to – Tell my, I have my little take, have my little movie, and uh, people want to see it, they can see it. Yeah. You know, it, that's it. It's yeah. a form yeah. of expression, I guess. Yeah, why would you do anything that you didn't want to do? That's why, you, that's, that's why most people go to work. Right. <laughs> They're doing right. something they don't particularly want to do because they just... You know. Yeah. And it's the rare chance that you get to do something you really do. You know, when, what did it I saw, uh, I can't think of his name, the animator, Chuck, Chuck Jones. Chuck Jones. I saw him on the Academy Awards, I think. They were giving him some special award. I think mm -hmm. it was the Academy Awards. And he said, 
I'm really lucky because my avocation and my vocation are oh, yeah, the yeah, same yeah. thing. Uh-huh. I've heard him say that. And if you can get to that point, then you're one of the very lucky few. Yeah. And I know a few people like that, and I draw inspiration from them. I mean, that's part of the reason probably why I call you in is like, you're doing something you really want to do, you know, and, and, and <laughs> making it happen. Yeah. And that, you know, apart, Ed Wood thing aside, it's just, you know, from experience that 99% of people say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I want to do that. They never do it. Right. And there might be a higher percentage of people in L.A. that actually do it. Um, because that's why they move here. But the thing is yeah. that most people just don't. Mm-hmm. And so when people do, it's people should, you know, it, it, it's like, it's like a power source for people. People can draw. I mean, I draw inspiration yeah. from, from you and, you know, Adam and, and Nick and, you know, Peter Robbins and, you know, Paul Kimball and all these people I know that do things and not to yeah. keep up with them just cause like. Wow, I want a little piece of that happiness too. So now I'm going to do this thing, right. and part of this is doing this show. So yeah, well, I think this would be a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, I, just... I don't even. I I guess it's like one of the few things I have left to do with the UFO subject is just talking to people about it. Yeah, and it kind of keeps my brain in it because I'm not doing a I'm not doing a blog anymore about it. Right. Occasionally, I have an idea about something I want to write about, and usually I don't do it. Not a contributor anywhere or anything. Uh, most of my writing now consists of doing introductions for people's books. Uh, Chris <laughs> O'Brien's uh, book, The Stalking the Herd, the new book, the cattle mutilation book, I wrote an uh, introduction for that one. And then, you know, Mac Tony's book, I wrote an uh-huh. introduction. And there's a, like a second edition of the Mac Tony stuff that Paul um, Kimball published, and I wrote an introduction for that one, basically saying, you know, talking about how I knew Mac and how much I missed him and all that stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, it's uh, the next thing I wanted to do, which I was going to do with Mac, and I keep mentioning, and I hope I do it, is um, a few months before he died, we started talking about writing a fiction book together, incorporating all the ideas that we Uh were just churning around between us. You know, the once or so a month that we talked on the phone for like an hour, between an hour and four hours. And one day, one day, one of us just said, why don't we just write a story? I think I was. I said it because... I'm lazy, and I don't think I can write fiction. <laughs> Mac is not lazy, and he can write fiction very, or he could write fiction very well. So I was going to try and use him to try and kick my butt, right, right, and and be involved with something that I thought could be, uh, uh, you know, something that I could attach my name to and be involved with, and that would really get me going. But um, but he died, so right. we didn't do it. Now I've, people keep saying, well, "Why don't you do that?" It's like, because well, I don't really know, and my <laughs> fiction writing sucks, and every time I write anything, I throw it away. But the things I have to keep doing it. It's like anything. Yeah. If you really want to do something, you just keep doing it until you're not throwing just, it away just anymore. Just wood it out. <laughs> I I really become intrigued with the idea of doing uh, like graphic novels, comic books. Yeah. You know, animator. I draw. Yeah. I like things like that, and uh, you know, I, I I actually have a screenplay that I wrote a few years ago before I started this documentary. Um, now there's a show called this, so I have to re- I'll have to change the title. It's called Starcrossed. Yeah, and it's a it's a Romeo and Juliet. Oh yeah, yeah. Story of uh, like a contactee story where they fell in love. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, you know, I keep thinking of revisiting that as a. I think it's a great novel. idea. And it was set in a fictional town of Menger, California. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there was that's the the one, one of the few. Episodes of 
like in the uh, X Files that I ever really watched was the one like the heavy duty UFO one where there's just I can't remember what happens. Oh, it's the one where it, it, they there's like something keeps happening over and over again. They keep doing it from different people's point of view, kind of like a Quentin Tarantino, right? But the entire thing is just references to UFO stuff. The entire I think the show was just an excuse to throw in references to UFO people, personalities, cases, yeah. places. Because it's through the whole thing. There's a guy there in, na- in there named Class, like Phil Class. Oh, right. Um, there's a there's a guy in there named uh, Rocky, spelled like Rocky Erickson's name. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the whole thing is just just somebody's idea of a bunch of inside jokes, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, because I'm watching it and going, you know, because usually I'd watch that show and go, "Why did they do that? It's so much more interesting than what they did with it. They could have stuck closer to the story and had a lot more interesting story. Yeah. So it could have t- stuck closer to the you know initiating. Uh, uh, you know, account or report or whatever that this went with and, and made it far more interesting, and it always irritated me. So people would say, you must love X-Files. like, no. What? Why not? Yeah, you know, I... It's kind of uh, shame on my nerd cred. I was never crazy about the X-Files. I wanted to be. Yeah, I wanted but, to be too, but I just couldn't. I just... It never worked for me. Yeah, there, there, were, there were a couple seasons where I really got into it. Really? But, uh... Um, a lot of them I was just like, eh. and actually a lot of their the the what are they, the mythological yeah. UFO episodes the the one offs were great, but when they went into the mythology of Mulder and his oh okay UFOs they got really convoluted and weird and I didn't like oh, them. Okay, yeah, I'm not like I don't have this like great fan thing on any TV shows anymore really except for South Park and uh, Arrested Development I liked a lot yeah. for some reason. But no, like you know, I'm not really. Uh, there's a lot. All the dramatic things, I just can't get into them for some reason. Oh, really? I, I I don't know why. The last dramatic show that I was into that I really followed, and this is really embarrassing, was Twin Peaks. Love Twin Peaks. <laughs> you it's know, really gr- one of the greatest shows. Oh, ever. Sherlock, the one that's on now, that's oh. on the BBC thing. Mm-hmm. That I love. So okay, that that's the most that's recent one. Yeah. Um, I've actually been into Vikings lately. Really? That's my current thing. Yeah. Uh, isn't there a isn't there a Viking series? I think there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a on History Channel. Actually. Yeah, okay. Surprisingly good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I've actually been watching the old Jerry Anderson show UFO. Oh yeah. <laughs> and it's so seventies tastic that it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Like it's not a terribly great show necessarily, but it's just fun to watch. It's bright yeah. colors and people in purple wigs. Yeah, and moon base. Nothing not to love about that. I used to watch that. I'm trying to find it on here. I, I don't see it now. But there's. Is this it? Is it working? Oh no, that's not it. Um. Oh, there it is. The theme, theme song from the TV show UFO. <laughs> Isn't that the one where the like there was a big explosion on one side of the moon and there was a moon base and the people who were on the moon base got like shot out into interstellar space? Maybe I, I'm only a few episodes in. Oh, okay. But, uh... Oh no, that was Space 1999. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, UFO was different. 
Yeah, there it is. A theme theme song from the UFO from the TV show UFO. <laughs> this this one it just it has the most amazing uh, like costume department. I don't know, yeah. like you know the. There's this whole long sequence where the woman on the moon, you know, the, the moon base lady, she goes she goes on break. So <laughs> she has this like mini skirt thing on and they do this long thing where she takes off the mini skirt and turns it no, no, no. She had pants on. Yeah. And she she like converts the pants into a mini skirt and now she's on she's recreating. Like that's the only thing that changed was yeah. like she converted her pants into a skirt. Now, <laughs> like, oh yes. I'm on break. I'm in my skirt. <laughs> there was a German sci-fi TV show from the 1960s that uh, uh, John Shirley, uh, the uh, the uh, friend of mine, um, was supposedly going to be hired to write the scripts for. Because I think um, uh, Verhoeven, Paul Verhoeven, was going to revive it as a feature. Verhoeven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. It, it never came to pass, but the show it came from, if you look, I can't remember how to pronounce it or even how to spell it, but if you look up German sci-fi TV show 1960s on YouTube, it'll come up. And it's like this, you know, it's supposedly this multinational crew, but they all happen to be white and speak German. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like a poor, like, it's in shot in black and white, and the, the sets are beautiful. And the thing is that you can see how they made the sets, like different little pieces they use. There's like some, there's like this big dial they have to turn and do something with. It's an iron. It's like a little iron, like a little clothes <laughs> iron, but it's been repurposed to look like this right. like high tech thing. But yeah, there's 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 a little scene like that in that where they they go and they they like go to have they're, they're on break or on leave or something like that off the ship. It's kind of you know it's kind of like a military ship, but it's in space. Right. I mean, it travels throughout. I guess the solar system. And um, when they go on break, they they go and do this thing. It looks like it's out of. It looks like it looks like a Mike Myers like Sprockets thing. <laughs> They're all dancing this like strange, yeah, this strange, very choreographed dance. They're supposed to all be having fun, but they're all going, you know, doing this weird. <laughs> And there's these people sitting in the foreground just talking about, like, you know, oh, where do you know, what do you think is going to happen with the aliens when we meet them? And, you know, how are we going to deal with this? And there's these people in the background doing this weird, like, interpretive dance thing. <laughs> you know, and they didn't, they didn't, I don't think they had a very big budget. And, 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 like, the club they're in, like, there's this supposedly this huge aquarium, and it's on the moon or somewhere in space. But they've got this huge aquarium with fish in it. But it's just a big... Clo- it's a close-up of a fish tank, like, <laughs> matted into the scene. <laughs> and it works really well. I mean, it looks cheesy and good at the same time. Yeah. Like, any- everything on that show looks cheesy and good at the same time. It's, I don't know how they managed it, but it, it's... Uh, and I can't remember the name of it. Some you know, if, if anybody's listening to the show, they can look it up on YouTube. It'll come up. <laughs> I, yeah, I found the soundtrack for it at a record store on vinyl. Wow, there's just I guess that it'd be they re-released the sound the music from the show, and so I just bought it just because I thought, hey, this is from that weird German sci-fi show. I, I've recently gotten into vinyl, and I I love going in stores and finding weird, weird stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> and and unfortunately, I, I think the eBay has sort of destroyed um, the yeah. fun of it in yeah. that. I found like uh, some obscure science fiction film soundtrack from the '80s. I can't remember which one it was, and they wanted like forty dollars for it. Man, nobody heard 
Yeah, Before nobody eBay, cares. Nobody yeah, cared about this. Should be like five bucks. Yeah, Come on. or less. Fifty cent bin. Yeah. I, it, so I you can it. still go to like antique stores and some thrift stores, and they'll have like bins of records. And sometimes you can find some really weird, incredible yeah. stuff. I don't look through it much anymore because I've I've got some. I've, I used to have a thousand vinyl albums. Wow! But through attrition and people stealing them from me and <laughs> being poor and selling them to Amoeba and all that, it's down to like I don't know three or four hundred now. That's but still, still it's a, like a hardcore. I don't want to get rid of that's these. That's in that collection right there. Yes, it goes from. Yeah, it goes from floor to ceiling, about that wide <laughs> up. Wow. Well, maybe about six or seven feet. I, I but, yeah, I wanted to kept my library very small. I sort of like, if I buy one, I have to get rid of one. Yeah, well, you're smart. <laughs> and then I have 78 RPM records, too, that I just started buying, and I didn't. And then I was out in Yucca Valley mm. at a thrift store, or a, a, sorry, an antique store, and I found a, a 1928 Victrola portable record player. Wow. It's about, it's like, one by two by one foot or something. It's a 1928 iPod. <laughs> you can like stack like two or three records in there, close the top, and I've taken it to the beach and like wound it up and played record 78 RPM <laughs> records on the beach. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I I was just gifted a whole box of 78s, and I I can't listen to any of them because my my record player doesn't do 78. So. Oh, uh, I have one pl- that that one, and then I have one I can actually plug in that I found at St. Vincent de Paul Thrift Store <laughs> years ago, and it actually plays it. In fact, I think one time I came in here and played 78s with that record oh, player. Really? Yeah, it's got the 16, 30, 3345, and right. 78. I, I had one uh, that played 78s, but uh, uh, it was like old from the 50s or something, and it had needed the separate needle. And the needle broke, and I couldn't find a new one. And oh, uh, you can find them online now. You can find parts for these things online, I think. Well, I, I probably could have, but I decided it was easier to sell the record player. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and get one that I knew how it worked. Yeah, I got four or five different turntables at home. I, I I used to have like six or seven, but I've like traded and given away and and sold. Yeah. Very, so I've got like three left now. But yeah, I still have that seventy-eight. Um, what one of my seventy-eight players? I oh, I know where I got it from. I traded it to a guy for a a ticket to see Les Paul because he oh. I had bought two tickets to see Les Paul when he was alive over at the the um, what's the place on Sunset? The music Palladium? place? No, the small place, uh, House of Blues. Oh. Uh, I went to see Les Paul there. Uh, there was like a tribute, and you know Eddie Van Halen played and. But, um, yeah, I got a 78 player from that guy. It was an institutional one like from that you used like, in school in the 1960s. You got a PA in it. You plug a microphone into it and crank uh, that. I don't think you'd play records at the same time in karaoke, but, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 but it's more junk, and we're trying to get rid of it now. So, you know, I, I would like to keep most of my vinyl, but I've gotten rid of a lot of it. And I want to get rid of a lot of my CDs now, too, and just... Yeah. You know, just rip the ones that I want and then, you know, keep weird ones like the Ghost Orchid CD, which is, right. you know about that? No, but it's it a, sounds like something I would keep. Yeah, it's a it's a um, a record produced, I believe, in the 1970s that's all about electro voice phenomena. Really? Yeah. And it's just it's just like it's got all these different it's got this like Swedish researcher who can speak English fairly well. You know, the electro voice phenomena is... <laughs> 
was begun in the 1940s when people used to hear strange transmissions coming from the radios in, you know, Sweden or whatever. And there's just recordings of, like, shortwave radio with, like, strange, um, like, voices and, like, things that mix two or three languages breaking in in between two other broadcasts. I mean, and the thing is, like, why would anybody be speaking two or three different languages and making up words on the radio for, like, five seconds? Right. And... This, these guys collected like hundreds and hundreds of these little things, these little huh. pieces on, and they were recording them with like, they would sit there with real, real tape recorders and just record hours of this crap, looking for the the little pieces that would drive, like switching between shortwave uh-huh. stations. And anyway, it's a fascinating little CD, and I think it got re-released. But yeah, it's called the Ghost Orchid, which is a great title. Ghost Orchid, yes, like the flower orchid. Yes, wow. Uh, I've been trying to track down the uh, authentic music from another planet. That's online. I, 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 I've heard the MP3, but I, I want the Oh, final. I want, yeah. I want the I do too. record. Yeah. Uh, hard to find. Very. <laughs> yeah, I've been looking for that, too, in the Long John Nebel record where he interviews. I have that one. You do? I actually got one of those just recently. Sounds amazing. It's like uh, they're in my living room talking. Vinyl, you mean? Yeah, vinyl. Oh, okay. Because uh, um, Tim Beckley, who does all this stuff, re-released, I mean, just made a CD of it and sold it. Yeah. I, so at least I have the audio. Yeah. So you know who Long John Neville was. Uh-huh. Did yeah. you know before you got the record? I did. Yeah, because he interviewed a lot of the contactees. I mean, that yeah. was like his, some of his bread and butter interview stuff. Yeah, I'd never heard of him before I started this, this uh, project, but uh, that was a lot of the early audio I was able to... Uh, tracked down was he interviewed Van Tassel and Adamski. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if it was on eBay or where. I, I, I actually, I, every, every so often I go to eBay and I type in contactee, UFO, yeah. Long yeah. John Neville, George Adamski. Yeah, I used to do that. I don't do it anymore because it just, I would go crazy and really start spending way too much. <laughs> yeah, when I got home after our interview, I I got on, on there and I found some... Uh, what I found? Oh, some George Hunt Williamson. I found on there. There's one was fifty dollars, and it was two hundred and fifty dollars. Like books, what, books. And what like, titles? Uh, it was the other tongues, other flesh. Oh, I okay. Think. That's the one I think that has the pictures from mm-hmm. the Orthon encounter yeah. in it. Yeah. And uh, there was uh, some. Uh, what was the uh, Gray Barker book we were looking at? Which the one? Mothman one. The, oh, Silver Bridge. Oh, yeah, yeah. They had a whole bunch of those of widely varying prices. I'm like, what makes these so different? Well, one is it was re-released. Uh, it was reprinted right. a few years ago. And the other one is, yeah, I think that's the only printing besides the first one. Well, these were all original uh, printings. Oh, okay. Like, well, the it's, cheapest it's pr- one was 50 bucks. But then yeah, it was, it was like probably beat to crap. And the other one yeah. is probably, you know, pristine with the dust jacket and all that other stuff. You never know. I, I got a... Uh, I ordered... Council of Seven Lights by Van Tassel. Yeah. And everybody, all the prices, you know, th- several hundred dollars for that book. And I found one for 25 bucks. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. So I bought it. And it's not in the best shape, but it's the first edition. It's signed. And wow. I'm like, all right. Okay. 25 bucks. Good for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I think that I wrote a flying saucer, that little first edition with the nice looking. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, watercolor cover. I got that for like twenty five or thirty bucks, but that was probably ten years ago, right? Maybe. And I just got lucky and found, and somebody either didn't know what they had or what. I've got a Charles, a first edition of a Charles Fort book that they didn't know what they had. Wow. Of um, 
That like from 1919 or something? It's the last one, so it's oh. from 1929 or 32 That's or something like that. Um, but it's got it's got the illustrations in it, these original illustrations that are extremely strange. I mean, it's like, who picked these illustrations? But that's what the publisher <laughs> thought would sell. Um, low. It's low, I think. Was that the last one? Uh, yeah, it was... Uh, the only one I can think of is the Book of the Damned. Yeah, that was the first one. Yeah. Uh, no, his last one was Wild Talents, I think. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a copy of Low, I think. I don't want to drag this on anymore and keep you here, and we've gone uh, just about two hours. Um, how much longer do you think to... Uh, well, you said your your due date is when Tomorrowland comes out, which is May of 2015. May, May of 2015. That's what I'm shooting for. I mean, actually, I'm, I'm going to stick to the December of this year, but okay. that's highly unlikely because uh, I don't even have a finished edit yet. I'm still interviewing people, yeah, and I have to do all the animations, so... I'm a fast animator, but I'm not that fast. <laughs> yeah. How much is it going to be animated, do you think? Um, <clears throat> Depends. As little as possible. Yeah. But uh, because I'm kind of a nerd, uh, I really am kind of salivating at the idea of, you know, a few of these scenes, like, you know, the Orthon thing. And, yeah. Um, so. Orthon looks like a surfer dude in the yeah, in, the, in does, your in yeah. your uh, Yeah. Uh, I'm, so I'm, storyboard. I, I'm shooting for probably just uh, a couple big sequences will be animated and then shots strewn throughout. Yeah. It's cheaper than buying stock footage to just do it myself. Yeah. Because <laughs> you don't have to worry about anything or any, you know, worrying about it, uh, stepping on anybody's toes or paying anybody off because yeah. it's original material. Yeah. But some okay. of it is, is animated to some of the um, original, like, recordings of people. Yes, I'll be covering up, uh, you know, the audio of, like, uh, Adamski talking about his experience in Desert Center. Yeah. And I'll be, you know, sort of depicting that as he's talking. Yeah. Um, There are other sequences. I'm not sure how I'm going to handle those yet where, you know, people are kind of cross-examining each other. And it's like, do I animate two people sitting in a radio studio talking to each other? I don't know. I'll, I'll figure that out, but... You'll think of something. I mean, um, the, the stuff so far looks really good. Yeah. So, Well, thank you. And plus, I, you've been doing it for so long, it's just it probably just pops right out of you. So. Yeah, I've, I've had a lot of experience in the last few years making spaceships fly. So, <laughs> so I, I, I know how to make a flying saucer really fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see it, and good luck with it. And if you need more stuff or help or whatever or, or coverage or something like that, just... Call me right back. Right, well, thank you very much. And you know, if if you're not back here before the film comes out, when the film comes out, you're going to have to come back and, and talk again when when your calendar will be full and everybody will be wanting to talk to you and you'll be famous. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, the right at, at the premiere at uh, Grauman's right after that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I hope it does really well. I mean, it, it's really as you, I, I think my idea is that it it's the way you present something. It's not you know really the right. subject matter. If you can make yeah. something be cool, sound cool, or whatever, give people a you know a way of looking at something that they never had before or right. didn't know about or only knew a little bit, those things seem to do kind of well. So, yeah. well, my real goal is just to make my uh, eBay collectibles uh, increase in value, get greater <laughs> awareness. <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, oh, well, good. Then I'll help you as much as you want. <laughs> then I'll offload them in a profit. Yeah. <laughs> Even when I was poor, I really poor, I started selling off my vinyl. I didn't sell off really any of my Contact D stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, some other rare books. I didn't. I didn't sell them. I I sold like music stuff. Strangely enough. Yeah. Well, some of that stuff it's irreplaceable. You know. Yeah. I'm not going to sell the uh, what's that one I showed you the. Uh, uh, Son of the Sun by Raphael Angelucci, signed to Gabe Green from yeah. Raphael Angelucci. I'm not going to sell it. I'm never no. going to sell it. Well, unless I'm starving and I can't make the rent or, you know, right. one, my wife or I have a medical emergency that we can't really, we have to pay off, then maybe I'll do it. But other than that, I can't see getting rid of that ever. No, that was, that was an amazing piece. It's, it, I got a Orfeo book signed to Bob Johnson or something, and I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know. It's funny. I come upon these things in strange ways. I have a copy of Criswell Predicts signed by Criswell. Hmm. And it's to somebody else. It says, to Juno Jordan, who gave me the name Criswell Predicts. And it's his writing. I mean, I've seen that he's signed other books, and that is his writing. But the thing is, I got it from somebody who wanted a carton of cigarettes. Just a friend of mine who was, you know, wow. a nicotine fiend, and he just said... He says, "I need a carton of cigarettes. Do you want that? Do you do you want that a Damsey book? I mean, Damsey. Do you want that Criswell book?" I said, "Yes, immediately. <laughs> Here, here's your cigarettes. Here's your money." <laughs> oh, I got the book. You know, I still have it, and he's still smoking, but I have the book. So, <laughs> I I had somebody walked in a room. And there was a box of books by the door. He's like, "Take anything you want." I'm like, "All right." So I grabbed a Bloom County book, and it was. Uh, I get it home, and I'm flipping it through it, and it's uh, signed by uh, Berkeley Breathed. Or breathed, or Burke, breathe, whatever. It's however it was pronounced. Yes. Um, I'm like, oh my god, this is actually worth something. Yeah, it happens every once in a while. I found that it signed to Damsky in a, in a used bookstore in San Diego, and they wanted like five bucks for it. Wow. So, and I'm looking there. I was like, I think that's George Damsky's signature. So I take it up front. You know, okay, I'll take this one and this one and this one. Then I got signed. I go, oh my god, I got it. <laughs> Whatever, and the guy looked through it to look for, at the price, and he didn't even like look and say, "Oh shit, this is signed." You know, it right. should be it should be more. He just said, "Okay," and he added it up, and like, I left the store. Yeah, downtown San Diego somewhere, and he lived in San Diego for like a lot of yeah, San Diego true. County, yeah. a lot of his a lot of his uh, years, his mm -hmm. like glory years. So I guess yeah. that might be the source of some of that stuff. Wow, that, uh, me finding it there. So yeah, start haunting San Diego bookstores. Yeah. The few that are left, I don't even know. I I yeah. bought that probably fifteen or twenty years ago or something. I don't yeah. know, but yeah. Okay, it's ten fifteen. I should let you go. Well, it's been fun. Yeah. So the film is uh, will be called. The working title is "They Rode the Flying Saucers." Yeah, and and I've been talking with the producer, director, everything, uh, whatever's needed. Uh, Patrick Connolly, thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Uh, and I don't know if I'll be back next week. Maybe I will. I didn't know if I'd be back this week. But then I talked to you. I was like, yeah, you want to come on the show? Let's go to the show. <laughs> so that's usually how these things turn out. Um, I would like to play a, uh, and you can't hear it because it's a con you know it's on here. I'd like to find another contactee song. I got all these UFO songs and a bunch of contactee ones are contactee-ish. There's even one called "You Ain't No UFO Gonna Catch My Diesel," <laughs> and at the end, the guy says, I, "I." He said, "After all this, he says I was a genuine contactee." 
Like, but the thing is, he didn't. He does the, what he talks about in the song doesn't really have anything to do with contactism. But that's that's just what he thought the definition was of contactee. I guess is uh, meeting a guy in your uh, 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 on the meeting a a, a, a f- uh, man in a flying saucer on the highway in your truck in the middle of the night <laughs> and racing him. Who did that, Joe? Joe D O L C E, which should be pronounced Dolce, but it's he said on his website it's pronounced Dolts. Let me see if I can find it. Howdy, I'm Big Joe Texas, and I'd like to tell you something that happened to me out on the highway the other day. All right, see the you next sun week. Was setting out on the dust of Texas Turnpike. I was just about a mile from the Oklahoma line when all of a sudden, between you and me. I saw a flying saucer, swear to God, nearly called me to collide. Well, pull up right alongside of my semi. Yeah, saw a little green man with a smile on his little green face. He said something to me, sound like Chinese or something, I couldn't figure it out. I could tell by the look in his eye that he wanted a race. Huh, ain't no UFO gonna catch my diesel. to the floor and we got trucking we were neck and neck about a mile or so but i guess his rig couldn't hold up to my eight-wheel drivers because when i turned around i left them in a cloud of smoke ain't no ufo gonna catch my diesel i don't care if it came from outer space Yeah, Patrick had to take off, so uh, we're left alone. Let me let me uh, look for one more song here to, to play us out, and uh, we'll see you next week, I think. Oh, how about the UFO message from Will Jima? Oh my God, that thing's great. This I was turned on to this by Adam Go Rightly. Uh, uh, actually, I not say obviously, but actually, wonderful stuff. Let that play for a little while while we uh, wrap up. 
This message you are about to hear came about in a very strange way. The circumstances of which I still find very hard to understand. I'm not going to reveal these circumstances at this time. I may never reveal them. But the UFO message will stand the test of critics and time. And to me and to those who will understand it, I'm sure that will be answer enough. This is the UFO message. Two presidents of the United States have had personal contacts with UFOs. They were Dwight D. Eisenhower and Harry S. Truman. In both instances, these presidents came away from these meetings with a new, sober attitude towards world conditions. President Truman put the brakes on an all-out nuclear war in Korea, and Eisenhower warned against the perils of our giant military-industrial complex.